All right. Now you're ready? Yes. Okay. I'm going to wait until that's done. (laughs) I'm done. Hello, and welcome to Book Retorts. Woo-hoo! I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is a podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends. I'm the friend. As always, Danielle <laughs> is my friend on the show. And not in real life. As far as everyone listening knows, that might be the case because we only exist for them in the context of the show. We are otherwise disembodied voices, amorphous, creepy, (laughs) amorphous, incorporeal beings that exist only in their ears. We could be. Maybe it's the future and the future is now. (laughs) Black Mirror. (laughs) The future as uh, indie podcast hosts. (laughs) So, uh, usually we'll have a new piece of media, but today, Danielle, we're continuing with part two of the Matt Ruff novel, Fool on the Hill. Fool on the Hill. Now, Danielle, you're going to have to help me, because I don't remember what happened last week, so can you please (laughs) remind me and our lovely listeners about everything that happened in part one of Fool on the Hill? You absolutely know that I cannot do that, And yet I ask anyway. Hope springs eternal. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier this week, Sam, I have not thought about this once in the intervening week, except for the song, The Fool on the Hill, has been in my head. Um, <laughs> which will not help you. <laughs> which is not going to help me. I'm fairly so, sure they're unrelated, but I don't know that for a fact. Uh, I can tell you most of the characters, not their names, but that they exist, but I okay, cannot tell you the plot of the story. Okay. So there's like, it opens with mr sunshine or something yeah you okay. got one he's like a, a a writer but more like a uh a writer from a different plane of existence who writes he with his is, mind quote unquote a greek original <laughs> oh yeah that and um he is writing apparently this story about the start of cambridge university is no correct? i mean cambridge <laughs> well, yeah. is a city in massachusetts but yeah, but it's well, okay. What, what's the city? What's the university that gets built? Cornell. Oh, Cornell. That's right. I forgot. Cornell, whatever. And so he's writing this well, like New mental. York and Massachusetts are very different. <laughs> he's writing this story about the in his mind about this. I don't know. Not like in his mind, he's writing like reality. He's he's weaving reality. Yes, he's weaving reality into a story, and the story starts with the beginning of Cornell University on a hill. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so we have that, and then it kind of jumps ahead to this guy named maybe George. George is his last name. Okay, well, George is in it. His first name, Stephen. Yes, first name. Yeah. I'll give you a hint. There's a pun in here. Oh, St. Saint, Saint George, right? Yeah, yeah. Titus? Titus, there you go, you got it. Oh my gosh, y'all, oh, 10,000 points to me, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Titus George is his name, and he is a student no. at Cornell. No? Oh, He writer? was a student. He was a student, he's a writer. Yeah, he graduated, he's a writer in residence at Cornell after becoming... A 
famous writer yeah, because his girlfriend yeah. broke up. No. Okay. So he yeah. had sex once when he was like 16. This all just came back to me. Once yeah. when he was like 16 or something. And then he broke up with his girlfriend and that put him into misery for the next like 10 years of his life and Seven, made him. Yeah. Okay. It was a really long time. And he wrote a bunch of books because apparently he can't get girls. And that is his impetus for writing best-selling yeah. novels because he's a moron. <laughs> Rejection is what fuels it. Like he is starting out at least under the impression that suffering is what's needed to create good art. And so every time he's rejected by a woman or has an unrequited love, that is fuel for his writing endeavors. Right. And not anything else bad in his life because apparently he's experienced no other misery as far as we can tell. Yes. Again, Just that. <laughs> this book has a lot of characters who claim suffering but are actually quite privileged and some characters that actually do suffer. And we'll get to that, but it's weird. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the other suffering characters yet. So... Uh, what does he go by in the story? George. George. That's why I said George. See, I'm yeah. not crazy. <laughs> You're not crazy. And there's also something about a, like a little... I mean, he has like three first names, so he has to pick one of them. <laughs> okay. So, well, anyway, there's something about a little uh, elfin creature thing. I don't know what she is. Sprite. Fairy Sprite. That's the word I'm looking for. Remember her Who name? Ar- no. Who rides around in little <laughs> airplanes, fake airplanes. So there are a couple of them. And there's like another one that likes her, but he's yeah. kind of a jerk and a player. Can't remember his name? No. It's very Shakespearean. Oh, Puck? Yeah. Uh, then what's the girl's name? I don't remember. Zephyr? Zephyr. Ah, I'm doing so good. Good job. I'll me. give you bonus points if you can remember her grandfather's name. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Hobart. No, not even remotely in my head. <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah. So, yeah, she has a grandfather and he, she has like a crush on George. She yep. watches him from afar on the campus as he putters around or nearby the campus. Mm-hmm. Flying the his yard. kite. I don't know. <laughs> flying his kite. That's right. He likes on to fly his kite and call the wind. That's right. He has wind powers for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Plots bananas, everybody. I'm sorry. It's really crazy. And Danielle, I got to warn you. I uh, spent a lot of time this week. I mean, this is by far the largest chunk of the book coming out. Like this book two of the four books is like twice as large as all the other books in this book. Mm-hmm. That was a sentence. Uh, <laughs> and I spent a lot of time trying to make this coherent. I do not think I succeeded very much. So I'm sorry, everyone. Something <laughs> to look advance. forward to. Because this summary already makes so much sense. I'm sure that going into this, they're expecting the rest to make sense as well. This book is very hard to summarize because it just has so much in it. Like, I leave out, like, entire, like, sections and chapters and, and it still is, like, dense. It's it's hard. It's, you know, it's, it's a book you have to really spend some time with. Yes. And I don't know what happens after that. There's... Well, uh, is there a plot? There's some other characters. <laughs> so, oh, oh, there's a side plot about a dog and a cat. Yeah, you got about to say like there isn't a lot of plot. I, I admittedly, the first book, quote unquote, is not a lot of plot. It's mostly character introductions and setup. But there is one part of the book that does have a plot, which is what you're getting to right now. Right. There's like three different kind of like things going on with this. There's the introduction of George and there's also some random girl that just appeared at the end of the story. And then <laughs> there is the cat and dog duo. And then there's like the whole thing with the nuns and the people, lots of people with the horses. Yes. We'll get <laughs> the to bohemians. That. Yeah. The bohemians. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's a word Everyone for them. Everyone loves the bohemians. They're, they're so free spirited. Yes. Anyway, so there's like a cat and dog duo. Remember their named- names? Blackjack and... Yes. Something else. Yes. I don't remember the other one. Luther. Luther, that's right. 
Sorry, I forgot. You remember that Blackjack is a... Cat. What kind of cat? It's your favorite kind. Minx. That's right. <laughs> With not much assurity. <laughs> that was the the like most uncertain answer you've ever given me. <laughs> Blackjack is a street smart minx. Everybody. That's right. And he ends up going with Luther, who thinks okay, his Luther's like uh, dog friend passed away. Yes, his mentor, his father figure, Moses. Right. He passed away. And so he thinks that he can go find his like spirit in heaven because he thinks he can smell his heaven on the wind. Yes. And so he goes, he decides he's going on this trip and Blackjack kind of gets like, I don't know stuck with him <laughs> right gets roped into like being his streetwise right. companion to try to keep exactly. him out of trouble and so then they end up in like some kind of suburban nightmare which yes. is many a suburban area <laughs> and um, they're like dog catchers everywhere and they're chasing everything around and there's like a whole other group of purebreds there's like a whole weird yes. thing about purebreds versus mutts mm-hmm. um as there are in all of our dog like media and <laughs> Why? (laughs) Because we love seeing an allegory for human conflict in our animal friends. Absolutely. So there's like an entire group of purebred animals that live in the suburban nightmare scape Mm -hmm. where that they try to like chase them out of there. They kidnap kidnap them. Oh, they're trying to chase them out of there. They kidnap them and then they try to kill them. Oh, yeah. They want to murder them hard. Yeah. Yeah, Remember the leader's name? No. Dragon. Oh, dragon. That's right. It comes back. Come maybe. on. You got a lot of St. George illusions and dragons. Oh, okay. You know what? I remembered a lot of the characters. Give me a break. You did better than I expected so far. <laughs> Way better be than honest. I expected so far. So there's dragon and he like tries to kill them, but I don't know. They managed to escape and carry on. Yes, remember what happens to Dragon and his posse? Yeah, they get. Oh, they all get like murdered by the crazy uh, dog napper kid, dog people, dog catchers, catchers. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. They get drinked and they are not catching them. I'll tell you what. No, it is. Uh, horrifying. horrifying. Yeah, terrible. Uh, yeah, so that happens in that story. Um, and <laughs> they go on their merry way to heaven, which they find, maybe. We'll get to that. Can't quite remember. And then there's like some weird side plot going on about a girl. Oh, a girl that's like a woman, a fairy, a thing, a creature, a mythical being that's like traveling across the United States. She's walking there. Yes. Do you remember her name? No. It's Calliope, Danielle. Calliope. And then there's like some girl who George knows. But we didn't realize he knows wait, until wait, she wait, shows wait, 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 wait. You got to talk more about Calliope. All you said was she's a girl traveling across the country. Well, what I said is she's she? like some weird mythical being that's like traveling across the country. Yeah, so what is her modus operandi? I have no recollection of that whatsoever. She makes people fall in love with her and then she breaks uh, their hearts yeah. to spur them to higher planes of excellence. She's like a weird muse. Yes. Like she's a muse. That's exactly okay. what she is. I did not remember that at all. <laughs> and <laughs> so she's traveling towards Cordell. Yeah? Yes. She's okay. on the next mission after breaking a mechanic's heart. That's right. Mechanic yeah. heart. And, uh... <laughs> Do you remember the name of the other girl who is, in fact, real and not a mythical being? Sarah. No. Michelle. No. No. She has some weird name, doesn't yes. she? Yes. And Sarah and Michelle are neither weird names. <laughs> uh, Pandora. Nope. Okay. I don't know. Man. <laughs> Just let me give you a hint, Danielle. Look north. Nordic. Uh... No, no, no. Look to the sky in the north. Oh, Aurora Borealis Smith. There it is. <laughs> Stupid. 
<laughs> the names of this make me mad. I think that's why I remember them, because they're all dub. <laughs> <laughs> they're certainly creative, and they only get weirder. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're not normal names. I think that's why I, probably why I remember them. That helps. Yeah. We're not like the three C's, which you'll never remember because they are very normal names. No. Chad, Cameron, nope. and Corbin. I don't know. Sam. You got one. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> one of the three is not bad. I won't tell you which one, though. It's Cameron. Um, the <laughs> I know there's not a Chad and a Corbin, okay? Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, oh, wolves, everybody. It's terrible. I'm going to write them down. I'm going to put them, I'm going to like put a note on my microphone. (laughs) When you ask me, I can actually remember them. Oh, what fun is that? (laughs) There is no fun in that. So anyway, last part of the plot, it's not really a plot. That's just the introduction of the bohemian characters who are like the, I don't know, it's a group that doesn't follow the regular people. They're a counterculture group. Counterculture, that's the term I was looking for. And they (laughs) (laughs) ride to, they do like a Mecca trip every year to school on their horses. Which they were purchased by? The main guy who is the head of the Bohemians. You don't remember his name at all, do you? No. Lionheart. Richard. Oh, I got it. Yeah. It's so good. Okay. Yeah. Like the Can best you thing ever. Any of the other Bohemians? <laughs> Not a single one. Not even Ragnarok? No. Sorry. Don't remember. Preacher? Uh-uh. Miyoko? Fujiko? No. All right. Aphrodite? <laughs> I kind of remembered they were there, but I didn't remember any of their names. Okay, cool. I can only keep track of main characters, Sam. This is very hard for me. These are all main characters, Danielle. This book is chock yeah, full of them. <laughs> but they haven't been really introduced yet. Fair. Uh, so Lionheart's in charge of the Bohemians, and they all ride into this town where there's some nuns in a car that don't do anything. Yep. And they're, I don't remember the conflict that ensues in this little town, but okay. something about a police guy that doesn't do anything. Yep. Oh, they're yep. bears. They're, I was going to say the bears, you can't even remember the <laughs> bear cubs. There's some guys in this town that are kidnapping some bear cubs, and the policeman's Hunters, yep. like, oh, do I have to do anything? Because he's a terrible <laughs> policeman. Yep. And... Then the Bohemians arrive in town, no. and they're like, hey, no. Before the Bohemians arrive, there is a biker gang. Oh, yeah. The biker gang comes in. I don't remember what they do. Do they tell them to stop get the bear cubs out? Well, they, yeah. They basically start harassing the hunters and like trying to free the bear cubs and causing mayhem and shooting out the windows and the stores in the street. Right. And then the Bohemians show up. Yes. And, and then the then, nuns are watching them from the car. No. The nuns are gone by this point. The nuns only serve to drive by to draw the attention of the bikers to the bear cubs. The nuns and the Methodists or something. Methodists are at the end. They're also irrelevant. <laughs> I know, but I remember them, so they get to add them into the story. Uh, and so the Bohemians arrive. There's more chaos. They they fight off the bikers, essentially. They, yeah, they oh, sure. All that happens. And then what's her name shows up? Calliope? Does that show yeah. up now? No, not not here. <laughs> no, does she show up later? Do they actually make it to the to Cornell? Oh yeah, so there's a whole scene later where Stephen Titus George is eating breakfast in McDonald's, right? Okay, no, and he <laughs> says hello to Aurora and her boyfriend. Oh, her boring boyfriend Brian or something. Brian Galloway, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> you are giving yourself a lot of credit. <laughs> remembered this many names in my whole life, Sam. This is, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, Dan, I'm going to give you a litany of names this next part, so enjoy it while you can. Yeah, I won't remember them next week, but this is very exciting. This is really impressive, I gotta say. Thank you. I'm very impressed with myself, too. Good job. 
I'll she should get no sleep more often. Point, if you can remember the name of the random smooth-talking gentleman in the McDonald's. Mm, I don't. The old guy, right? That's yeah. like hits on everybody. No, I don't know his name. He's slick like wax. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not butter. <laughs> anyway, you remember that Brian... And Aurora and George all have a little conversation where Brian's like, oh, yeah, I skimmed your oh, book. It was okay. yeah, 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 because yeah, he's such a jerk. Yeah. And then after they leave, Wax tells George, hey, you should steal her away from Brian for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> because Brian's a jerk face. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, that's enough for this stranger to comment on who she should be with and what he should do about it. I'm on Wax's side on this one. Okay, great. And then the Bohemians arrive at the school. Oh, yeah, they arrive and they have a little meeting with George who gives him some drinks and they're like, give George some fortune cookies. Oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. Uh-huh. That was towards the end. I, I, I bet you were fading say. hard. And then, the, and then the lady shows up. Calliope shows up and then Lionheart's like, oh, she's not for me. Yep. She shows up, starts dancing naked in the quad by herself later. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I forgot the naked dancing. It's just such a college normal experience that it left my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much all that happens. We meet all those characters. And do you remember anything about Aurora's father? Um, Isn't he like very... We had that big argument about whether or not he was supportive, right? Right. So Walter Smith. Oh, Walter Smith. Yeah, I didn't remember his name at all. I didn't think so. Uh, He's talking about how like he has two sons. One died young and was like a counterculture rebel protesting Vietnam and was killed oh, by yeah. a car. He's like, he I love that son his... better than my other son. He's like, yeah, that's right. He has favorites and then he wants his daughter. He tells his daughter to do something a little bit crazy. He's like, if you were a lesbian, I'd be okay with that. She's like, what? He's like, <laughs> if he's like no, what he says, if you decide to be a lesbian, which is an insane statement. <laughs> it is an insane statement. And he's like, you got to like be, I, I want you to be more rebellious. I think you're a rebel in you. Like, I want you to be more rebellious. So anyway, that's important because the, those thoughts, of course, will plague Aurora through this part. I want to make sure we touched on them. Yes, I figured. So there you go, everybody. Uh, That summed up the first part of The Fool on the Hill. (laughs) There was one thing you missed entirely. I'm sure that's true. Which was not your fault, because again, this book loves to reference things in very minor ways. And if you don't remember, there was the Boneyard, and in the Boneyard... I did mention the Boneyard. boneyard, Yes, but in the Boneyard, there's a very important place. There is a plaque in the ground Uh where all the gravestones are are sort of tilted away from it, like they're trying to get leaning away from it, like they're scared, and there's a plaque that says Pandora. That's right. Let's see. That's where I got Pandora from. I'm not crazy. Nope. Not crazy. So yeah, that's uh, all the stuff I wanted to sort of bring up. I mean, you did a really good job condensing my ramblings into something at least moderately coherent. You're welcome. Anytime. I did also want to mention that before I was, I guess we forget that Lionheart has the wealthy benefactor, independently wealthy person, bought all the horses for his friends so they could play counterculture. And I feel strongly that while I admire their ideals of you know inclusivity and you know, being progressive and everything, I don't think that like they've actually faced any actual hardship that has led them. <laughs> At least not Lionheart who led them to this point. At least none has been explained. So Agreed. Just before we get into part two, I did want to offer just a few trigger warnings because there is uh, a bit of violence. There is references to uh, rape and suicide in this part of the book. So just an FYI for everyone out there. All right, so let's begin with Fool on the Hill, book two, Tales of Autumn. Mm-hmm. Is Autumn a person? Because that seems like this kind of book. Unfortunately, no, it is referring to the season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a lost thing he could have done. 
be a lot of fun. He was like, hi, I'm Autumn. Let me tell you some stories. <laughs> Not quite that obvious, but sure. No, I just love this whole thing's like drop the entire first book. Like that's irrelevant now. We're just going to talk to like it's a children's show, like a lamb chop sing-along <laughs> situation with Autumn telling you stories, like kid stories. I, mean, I did like lamb chop as a kid. Who didn't? <laughs> All right. So chapter one of book two, 1866, Outside the Bone Orchard. And we're, we're going back, back in time. Yep, back to Ezra Cornell and Mr. Sunshine. Mr. Sunshine is dragging Ezra through the graveyard outside of town, which is called the Bone Orchard. But Mr. Sunshine thinks that's a bit of a mouthful. I want to call it the Boneyard because that sounds better. And I'm like, I disagree. Bone, bone Orchard, orchard. Is way cooler than Boneyard. <laughs> like Boneyard, yeah. Bone Orchard, that's got a ring to it. So <laughs> Mr. Sunshine, I'm going to doubt his writing prowess because whoever picks Boneyard over Bone Orchard is a fool. Back me up here. <laughs> I did. I agreed with you, Sam. I think Bone Uh, Orchard is a better name. It's much less uh, common to use. Also, like trees made of bones, like it just has these is evocative of imagery. Anyway, yes, it's better than Boneyard. I agree. I'm. I'm, I was very upset that they had Bone Orchard right there. He's like, I can get rid of that. So as they wander, Mr. Sunshine keeps saying inscrutable things like, the Black Knight will live near here in a black house. I wonder what I can do with him. And Cornell's just like, okay, sure, and just goes along with it. And that's the prologue. Okay, Black Knight living near there. The Black Knight, yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So now we cut to the first week. George is getting ready to teach his first class, and he's filled with a sense of anticipation. He's a teacher? Yeah, he, like, teaches as an adjunct or something, writing classes. Did I know that? (laughs) No. Maybe. (laughs) I might have mentioned it, but it really doesn't come up very much. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I hadn't missed some weird... I just... I honestly kind of still thought he was a student. No, he definitely was... uh, I mentioned he was a writer in residence, and I guess he also teaches occasionally, like, one or two classes a year or something as, you know, a special guest professor or something. I don't know. I guess he has all the money and privilege, so he, they can give him teaching positions that someone else could use to actually make some money. Yes. I'm not bitter about academia at all. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So he has this anticipation that something is coming, and he's reading the college newspaper, The Sun, which has an editorial article titled, No Spill Dragon Wanted. And this article starts out lamenting how the drinking age has been raised from 19 to 21, which is just awful. Because during the Green Dragon Parade, which is this annual parade where the architecture students build this giant green dragon float thing and parade it through the campus, last year, for the first time ever, the dragon collapsed in on itself, like it fell apart. That was because of the drinking age? No. So this is where it gets, <laughs> again, this, it's supposed to like three paragraphs after the drinking age, and then it launches into this story as like, this is related, we promise. <laughs> So what the editorial was on to say is that the architecture students, so distraught, had to go drown their sorrows in booze. And if they hadn't had the outlet to do that, they may have like been pushed at such depth as a stair, they might have like thrown themselves off of the gorge or whatever and killed themselves. I'm going to tell you right now that the drinking age means nothing in college. So the idea that changing it is going to deeply affect college culture is bananas. And also that like... If the only thing keeping someone from, like, such despair they commit suicide is drinking, drinking is not going to help I wasn't that, even right? going to get into that. But like, yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> that's, that's, like, insane. That's literally crazy. But that's the argument they go with. And they end the article by saying, hey, we really need people who can make a dragon that won't fall apart because we can't have a repeat of that because there could be some, some unfortunate outcomes if that happens again. So they need better architecture students, maybe the ones that don't drink. 
<laughs> I'm just saying that would have solved their problem. <laughs> Counter argument. <laughs> anyway, I think it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now we cut to Fujiko, who is waking up with a massive hangover because Bohemians had a big old party when everyone got back to campus last night before classes started. And so most of the Bohemians are all hungover. And she stumbles into the bathroom, which is, <gasps> gasp, co-ed. Uh-oh. I know, right? Crazy talk. <laughs> I guess it was the 1980s. Maybe things were a little more uptight then, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like that big a deal here. I've used many a co-ed restroom. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So Preacher is sitting, waiting for his turn, sitting on the floor while the new bohemian, Woodstock, the minister of impetuousness, is splayed out on the floor, which is just gross. Don't lie on the floor of a bathroom, guys. No, it's a bad idea. Always. And forever. <laughs> no, always, just always a bad idea. I'm so, I don't care how recently it was cleaned. Most floors are not things you should lie on, especially bathroom floors. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just are in a space in your life, Sam, where you end up on the bathroom floor. <laughs> I'm not judging it. I'm just saying, like, I, I just thought it's gross as long as I put it out there. It's, it's not a good idea. Usually if you're on the bathroom floor, you're already doing something gross or have been through a <laughs> gross experience or yeah, you're in a, a state point. where you just don't care. That's a fair point, Danielle. I should have given Woodstock more you, credit. You very rarely are sitting on a bathroom floor for fun. <laughs> you're like, this is this is where I want to be in my life right now, hugging this, this bathroom floor. This is a good spot. <laughs> So they're waiting for the shower. There's only one shower, apparently, for this dorm, and it's occupied by two guys having sex, which is just rude. You never have sex in a public shower. I'm pretty sure people do that all the time. They do. I'm but it is rude. kind of mean when there's only one. <laughs> yeah, it's rude. And also, like, don't hog the whole shower for all your other hangover roommates when, like, you want to get some nookie in the shower. Like, have some consideration. Yeah, you tell them. Meanwhile, Luther and Blackjack are on a tour of the campus, led by a silver tabby named Sable. Oh, that's right. They show up at the campus. Yeah, they arrived there. The Heaven campus. I totally forgot that Heaven was the campus. Yeah, they just arrived there. That's that's all that happened. So you really didn't miss right. much. Well, yeah, but I, like, that's kind of important. <laughs> They're on campus. Oh, and, that's and there's, thing. like, a thing about how dogs are allowed to run around on campus. They can't right. be caught. Right. There was an endowment that declared that all dogs would have free run of the campus. And apparently cats are just folded into that, too, because no one seems to care about them. Yeah, well... Cats are hard to catch. That's true. Anyway, so Luther and Blackjack are on this tour, led by a silver tabby named Sable, who's flirting hard with Blackjack, and her form of flirting is just telling him, hey, I'll be in heat soon. So, you know, subtle. Oh, and, and they, there's no, none of that, like, purebred nonsense so far here. Well, we've only just got here, Daniel. Well, I just said so far. I just yeah. meant literally, like, so far. <laughs> Luther is still convinced that this is heaven and is arguing with some of the other new arrivals because they're like, are you sure this is heaven? This is like a school. Like, we don't think it's heaven. He's like, how do you know it's heaven? He's like, just, it is heaven. Trust my fall of my nose here. And then I also want to point out here that the dogs often have accents that are related to their breed. So like the Scottish terrier will have <laughs> a Scottish accent and like the English sheepdog will have an English accent. And just like born with it. It doesn't I don't matter know why. where they're it doesn't raised. Make any sense. Like. <laughs> They're all American dogs. They didn't like, yeah, I'm like exchange dog from, you know, England came over to, to study at, at Cornell. Like, what? It's just more fun to write them with accents, Sam. I mean, I guess, but it just seems a little weird. I just want to point that out there because I'm not going to do the accents. Oh, come on. You're so good at your accents. No, not, not even. Like, Sam, I'm not going to read dog dialogue in accent because I'm not even reading dog dialogue. <laughs> no. So, anyway. You never do what I want. I always do what you want. What are you talking about? <laughs> Just like one or two things, just pick a good one. Like the Scottish. <laughs> I bet you could do the Scottish. <laughs> Not even going to bother. So 
so disappointed. Uh, you did a whole oh. German. You did like two episodes of German <laughs> accents, and you can't do one little Scottish accent. Danielle, we have so much to get through in this episode. <laughs> I'm sorry, I cannot. I cannot stress how much I'm there is. I'm pretty sure in this. our listeners really, really enjoy your accents. In fact, that's why they tune in. <laughs> maybe I'll do a bonus for that. So maybe check our Patreon. Perfect. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> maybe no. Promises. I got it out of him. We're good, everybody. <laughs> nope, I promise nothing. Continue. So the dogs are telling Luther that this is a place of learning, a place of study, and it's where the dogs grapple with the five questions. The five who, what, where, when, why, how, when. Yes, the five questions of journalism. (laughs) (laughs) No, one of these five questions doesn't matter. We'll find out later. Guided by the philosopher dogs who run this place. What is dog life? What is the purpose of our pause? <laughs> You're actually pretty close. So, I mean, what it's obvious what the questions will be once you get to them. Uh, but Luther is confused by all this because he's like, I don't really understand. I thought this was heaven. But then he gets distracted by a series of trenches and barbed wire and concrete structures on campus. Mm-hmm. And Sable explains that there's an ongoing protest and that protesters are human beings who complain about the way things are so that other human beings can get annoyed and kill them without feeling too badly about it. <laughs> I feel like that's a pretty dumb take on protests. It like, is. <laughs> even if it's a joke, like, one of the main ways that humans affect social change for disadvantaged groups who protest and just dismiss it as, like, no, oh, they're just annoying people so they can get killed. I don't know if that's, like, a cat perspective or the author's perspective, but either way, it feels not good. Yeah, if it's the author's perspective, we probably have a problem. Yeah, definitely. So a sign above the encampment reads, Welcome to Hooterville, which belongs to the Blue Zebra Hooter Patrol. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which is a benign terrorist organization of Cornell based on nonviolent confrontation. And they're called Hooters because they hoot? Nope. They like owls? <laughs> I have no idea, Danielle. They wanted a goofy name, so they got a goofy name. Okay, well, that's all right. Their main issues of protest are to have the college divest all holdings for companies doing business in apartheid South Africa, implement affirmative action to increase diversity, and self-defense training for baby seals, because (laughs) nothing can be serious. Like, you have to lump in (laughs) apartheid and affirmative action with, you know, teaching baby seals self-defense because you have to undermine this, apparently. This book, man. (laughs) I know this book is, like, goofy and tongue-in-cheek, but, like, that feels in bad taste. (laughs) So, I mean, baby seals do need some help. They do. I'm not <laughs> they saying- They don't always make it, Sam. <laughs> I'm not saying animal rights aren't a good thing. I'm just saying to like lump in some goofy joke about teaching baby seals karate with apartheid is not necessarily- the- taste. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, so George and some of the Bohemians are hanging out in Hooterville with Fantasy Dreadlock, the leader of the Blue Zebras. Fantasy Dreadlock. Yes. Fantasy Dreadlock is her name. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. Get ready for some names, Daniel. I warned you. I'm not going to remember these. I can already no, tell. Not. For some reason, everyone is here, including Aurora and Brian Galloway, who was arguing with the leaders of gay people at Cornell. Why is he even in this counterculture place? I don't know, but they're just hanging out. Maybe because Aurora's there? I know it doesn't even make any sense then, because he's there with the other leader of the Cornell's for Christ. So, like, the whole group's there. Are they counter-protesting the counterculture? No, they're just hanging out and good-naturedly arguing with people. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's just fun, Sam. Maybe he's enjoying it. Uh, I guess so. And there's a long digression about the origin of Hooterville, which I will not go into because it doesn't matter. But suffice to say, the college agreed to it on temporary basis. Basis, but then a $5 million grant from some alumnus conditioned on Hooterville being left alone basically allowed them to keep Hooterville. So again, privilege and money comes to the rescue of the counterculture people, which never happens in real life. I guess you don't agree with that. I agree with that. Sorry. I was thinking about something completely unrelated, though. I was listening. 
Uh, clearly not. You're just like, oh, we have a little daydream over here while Sam's talking. What were you thinking about? Do you want to share with the class? Mm, well, no, I was thinking about how I originally... <laughs> so dumb <laughs> about how i originally thought this book was in england for some reason in my brain when we were starting this conversation at the very beginning and that's why i said cambridge because in my head i was like this book's in england <laughs> so that's where my brain went and then you were like what are you talking about and i was like it's not in england <laughs> and so when you were talking i was like cambridge is in england what is he that's why i was confused <laughs> oh i meant cambridge massachusetts no and like you went to massachusetts and then it threw me all off because i was like wait we're not in england because i totally <laughs> forgot this was in the united states even though we had great discussions about the greek mythos and united states culture sorry danielle this is not england despite your uh, your assumptions <laughs> and- well it does kind of have like a weird like british vibe to it <laughs> oh, we're going, I, I guess you know ithaca cornell they have that like new england flavor but it's more greek than british yeah i don't know in my head that's where it was and then i was surprised it was the united states because my brain hadn't caught up with the rest of the plot yet all right let's return to the story at hand here sorry yeah okay (laughs) yes uh but protesters who miraculously always get saved with their protesting by people with money and privilege so yes which feels not true to life for actual protesters who have to endure actual hardships for their causes but does feel true to life for this very privileged university system yes that is i mean that's fair that's a good point so ZZ Top, one of the Bohemians, if you don't remember. Oh, yeah, I do. Vaguely. He's the Bohemian minister of bad taste, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. observes that Aurora is pretty, and apropos of nothing, that George should just steal her away from Brian. Why does everybody think this? Because that's all the answer I have for that, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> because Mr. Sunshine is infiltrating their minds. I mean, what he says is that he thinks that they don't make a good couple and that Brian has a look of a being like a Mr. Overbearing type. But like, even if that was true, you don't know anything about the relationship. You don't know anything about George's feelings towards Aurora or like, their relationship. Like, this is crazy. Maybe it's just totally based on looks. So he's just going, they don't look like a good couple, but George and Aurora look like a good couple. And to be fair, Lionheart has put on APB for the Bohemians to try to find George a partner, basically. Okay, so maybe he's just, you know, surveying the audience. <laughs> yeah, but why Aurora, the one person who's he knows is taken there when there are, I'm sure, many available women on campus? Well, he's just like pondering, Sam. So who cares if she's taken or not in the ponder? But he's like, no, he's actually saying, go steal her away from Brian, which is not just pondering. What, well, if, did he tell him that? Yes. George? Oh, well, that's different. Yeah. He's saying, hey, George, you should steal Aurora away from Brian. He doesn't look a good match for her. Well, he'd say that all he wants. It doesn't mean George will necessarily do it, except plot wise, he probably will. Oh, yeah. But like, <laughs> what a crazy thing to say to somebody is my plot. Like, I would never go up to somebody, hey, you see that friend of yours who's dating that guy? You should totally steal them away from them. <laughs> Even though I know your friends, I don't know if you have any romantic feelings in her. I don't know what their relationship is like. And just what I, like, it feels presumptuous at best. It does, but our, but Brian and them, George, are not actually friends. So no, but Brian, more like, but, but George and Aurora are. I'm not saying it's not morally super weird and questionable and iffy. I'm just saying that. I'm just saying it's a weird thing he, to suggest. I guess, but it's, I don't know if it's that weird. <laughs> I don't know, it feels strange to tell somebody, hey, go steal away your friend from this other guy. It'd be weirder as a very serious comment, which maybe it is in this context. It'd be it's less weird as like a serious. casual thing. Be like, you should totally get her. <laughs> I, I, I guess. Be a good I match. Just, and to be fair, it's happened several times now. So maybe I'm like putting more weight on it than ZZ Top is. No, it's weird that multiple people have thought it because in yeah, real life that probably George. wouldn't happen. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Anyway, suddenly they're interrupted by a spring-loaded cannon, which is located in the middle of the camp and is used for dispersing leaflets. The cannon goes off, showering everyone with white roses, and one lands in George's lap with a note that says, To the daydreamer, I love you. And he is freaked out by the, like, what a quote, this could never happen by random. How'd that happen? I feel like this wouldn't, okay, that that aside, I don't feel like <laughs> in this modern day and age, they would have a cannon that would shoot things. They don't even let, like, don't they don't even do, like, the t-shirt guns anymore at events? Again, They won't eat throw candy at parades. <laughs> 1980s, Danielle. I'm just saying, it's wild. It was this a wild was like time. like 50 years ago. I know, crazy. The 50? How old are we, Sam? <laughs> 40 years, okay. It was 40 years ago. Jeez. I just want to make you feel old. The point is, <laughs> I don't know, Danielle, if, you, if you're going to get 40. upset about what they will and will not allow on campus, then trenches, concrete structures, and barbed wire encampment in the middle of campus is also something that they should probably not have on campus. I wasn't upset about it. I was just saying that the world is such a different place. Remember the time that we could have guns shoot flyers and roses out at people? I mean, that's fair. It has changed. Yes, the world is very different, Danielle. Remember the good old days, which aren't all that good? No, that's true. Continue on. So anyway, we cut back to Luther, who has become transfixed by the smell of heaven again, which is overwhelming him, stronger, and he's rushing towards it with blackjack in tow. Is it a restaurant on campus? No. <laughs> that'd be better. That'd be more like what a dog would run to, though. So that'd be more accurate. So elephant rushes... ears. They're selling elephant ears. <laughs> that, that would smell like heaven to me, Danielle. I know, right? I mean, I, like that's why you go to the fair: corn dogs and elephant ears. <laughs> what else is there, man? Or deep fried Oreos? Mm, deep fried Oreos. I want to go to the fair. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you have Midwestern in your blood, which means mostly like, mostly fairs, <laughs> mostly trans fats and and, and deep fried oils. Mm, fairs. Fair food is the best food. <laughs> it's. It's a combination of, of the grossest thing you'll ever have, but somehow also the best. Yes, exactly. See, Midwest knows how to party. Mm, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I said it before, Danielle, and I'll say it again. Ambrosia salad is oh, the worst right. salad. <laughs> but ramen noodle salad is delicious. So, you know, uh, they have that going for them. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm just going to move on. So as Luther is running through Hooterville, he runs right up to George and he bowls him over and starts looking at him profusely because apparently George, having lived in Ithaca year-round for so long on the campus, is now suffused with the heaven scent. Okay, and are why there lots is he of su- people that Yeah, I was going to say, like like, why is no one else on campus? Like, there are janitors, there are administrators, there are, you know, people who, you know, do maintenance and professors who do summer research and summer. Like, there are people who live there a lot longer and none of them apparently smell like heaven except for George. That seems a very questionable plot point. It is Mr. very convenient. <laughs> yes. But Luther is now convinced that George is like a saint or a seraph or something, some kind of angel or holy in some way. Now we skip to Puck, who is with his best friend Hamlet in a toy battleship modified to be drivable on a lake on campus. The ship is named Prospero. Why are they all Shakespearean names? I was going to say, we'll get to this in a minute. The names for the sprites make no sense. Some of them are weirdly like fantasy, like Zephyr and Hobart. The other ones are just pure Shakespeare, like Puck and Cobweb and Pamela and Prospera. I I don't know why. I have no answer for this, Danielle. It doesn't make any sense. It feels like someone just trying to make like, hey, look at all these things I've read and I know about. Maybe one of the parents of one of the sprites like got into the library and was a book reader. Could be. I mean, maybe one of them is like a Shakespeare fan. Exactly. So they're putting around talking about Puck's love life and Hamlet guesses that Puck hasn't been able to make up with Zephyr yet, partly on account of her infatuation with George, who, while he may be human, Hamlet observes, is on good terms with the wind. So probably not 
to be trifled with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But apparently Zephyr was coming around with Puck, but then learned that Saffron, the one Puck had a dalliance with, was going on the raid, whatever that is with Puck. And she's like, uh-oh, I'm angry at you now again. And so Hamlet's like, Puck, why did you do it in the first place? And Puck is like, well, we didn't have a firm commitment and I had urges. And yeah. Hamlet rightly is like, yeah. And Hamlet's like, rightly, that's very dumb. <laughs> but that's about as smart as he gets in this book because while he's smart to observe that Puck is being very stupid here, his advice is just keep being nice to Zephyr and she'll come around or just chuck her and find someone else. So, you know, good people all around. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean... It's basically commit to one or commit to the other, so... It's not a bad idea to say, hey, you know, fish or cut bait, but on the other hand, saying, oh, she'll come around eventually and assuring him of that is nonsense. Yeah, I hope she doesn't. Oh, if only. She so at this point, some kids on the shore of the lake just start throwing stones at the ship because they can see the ship, just not the sprites because sprites are invisible to humans mostly, unless they're like in an altered state or dying. So Hamlet returns fire by having a catapult lift out of the deck of his ship and launch an egg at them. The egg is filled with some... Some kind of child repellent goo that smashes one of the kids and he collapses screaming. So, you know, that's good. <laughs> There's not some weird rumor around campus about like child repellent eggs. <laughs> Apparently the kids are nonplussed by this, except for the one who is covered in child repellent goo. As they leave the encounter, Hamlet again insists, just give a time. Women have a way of coming around. And at no point do they ever even consider what, like, Zephyr might actually want or how she feels. Yeah, yeah not at all. Question, with the uh, child repellent goo, if one child gets the repellent goo on them, are all the other children repelled by that child? I think they were startled by the sudden appearance of an egg catapult and may have been distracted <laughs> long enough for the ship to get away. And B, if you saw your friend suddenly attacked by a mysterious remote control boat and collapse screaming, you might give you pause for further attacks. But is it really repellent? Like, is it magically repellent or is it just like gross? And so therefore it's... I have no idea. It gives no details on what it is. All Hamlet says is he'll be fine in, in a little while. Like, it, it, it's temporary. The effects are temporary is all he I says. I like the idea that the kid is hit with the child repellent and is like knocked to the ground, but that all the other kids are repelled by that kid magically and then just leave them there. It's a suffer. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, we can't be here. We're repelled by this child. <laughs> that might very well be what happens. But I hope that's what happens. We get that's no funny. details. Uh, meanwhile, Preacher and Ragnarok are hanging out in the quad, eyeing some of the sorority girls, but the hot one they're looking at is part of the Tri-Pi fraternity, which is the sister fraternity of the Rho Alpha Tau, which is called the Rat Frat, which they hate. For reasons we'll get into later. Okay. Just then, the orientation counselor comes up to them to introduce a new transfer student named Jinsei. And Preacher and Ragnarok both instantly, quote unquote, begin to care for her, or at least lust after her in a friendly manner. Gross. So, yep. Very gross. They make small talk for a bit before Jinsei leaves, and Preacher and Ragnarok acknowledge that they both like her. And Ragnarok jokes that the only thing to do is to take turns following for her. Okay. And the book's like, and he has no idea how right he was because foreshadowing. Oh, yeah. You have like a weird over voice. Yeah, there's a narrator, this omniscient narrator that's narrator, constantly. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned it later, but I'm going to talk about it now because it comes up a lot. Is that the narrator like does this thing where whole chapters just, like set like at the same time something was happening with that set in motion, all these events that are about to happen, and then it actually gets into those events. Like it'll preview all the events that are about to happen and then tell you about them. Do you think it adds anything to the story, or is it completely unnecessary? I, I kind of think it's a little. I mean, I get that it's, it's kind of like part of the narrative voice of the story, where it's like mm-hmm. you know being kind of like. It'll add like those irrelevant details like during the the ride of bohemian you know how it's like hey uh, about to enter the small town was a you know nuns in a limousine uh, a biker gang on refuge 
refuge from a gang war and the nonconformists from Cornell and a truck full of Methodists. Like it, it, it's sort of like setting up this sort of humorous situation. And then it goes into the details. And while it may not bring up all those other details, it just sort of like provides a humorous framework. All right. Uh, I don't think it adds anything plot wise. But as I mentioned, this book is not very plot heavy. <laughs> right. So More about atmosphere, I think you said. Right. So it does that, I think, as an atmosphere device. If you really want to get a sense of it, read the book. That's, that's true for all of our media. You know, we talk about a lot of media on this podcast and don't, don't like take our word for it. You know, check it out yourself, <laughs> whatever it is. Don't judge a book by its podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Good slogan. That should be our, that should be our subtitle. <laughs> book retorts. Don't judge a book by its podcast. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that evening, Aurora is on a picnic with Brian, but she decides to wander off on her own to go admire a stream. She thinks about what her father says about not wanting her to grow up regretting not being more adventurous, and she admits that she has these transgressive thoughts, like thinking of God as she. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know, right? Like, how transgressive is that? Well, you know, I guess it's trying to set things up for this book. It's people being very conservative. Again, I think I mentioned earlier, all the characters are like extreme in one way. They're all either extremely counterculture or extremely conservative. There's no like normal people in this book. <laughs> you know, in between people, which is what most people are. Yeah, exactly. But Aurora realized she loves Brian. And despite her father only seeing him as sort of overbearing and impatient, he hasn't seen what she's seen, which is when he's done kind things. Like go out of his way to apologize to a friend he had an argument with or holding an elaborate funeral service for his sister's pet rabbit. Aww. So she thinks that true love is hard to turn away, especially first love, and she has time to figure it out, but not much since she knows Brian is going to propose soon. I better get her life together then. Big decisions on the forefront. <laughs> Meanwhile, that Friday, the dogs are holding their own convocation. Sergeant Slaughter, a bulldog from the ROTC, is rounding up everyone, but despite that, Luther doesn't see Moses in attendance. She's like, where is Moses? This is heaven. He should be here. Luther is looking for Moses and half listening to some of the other dogs who are arguing about the fourth question where one of the mutts is arguing that the fourth question is prejudice, and the other dog is defending it that's saying that it's not prejudice in of itself because it causes you to engage in reverse cognition, which is when you attack the question as unanswerable, then you are attacking the notion of prejudice itself that the question implies. And it's all kind of like freshman philosophy class stuff going on here. <laughs> well, they are dogs, to be fair. That's very true. Meanwhile, Luther is starting to waver in his belief that this is heaven, but Blacktech is like, hey, you know what? Even if it's not heaven, it's still pretty good here. Can't we just enjoy it for what it is? Just then, an English sheepdog named Excalibur Third gets up and starts <laughs> to give a speech as the Dean of Studies. The purebreds all cheer for him, but the mutts don't. They seem to still be some divisions. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Shocking. It's not as perfect as it seems. I know. Who could have seen that coming? So uh, Excalibur explains that they have philosopher dogs there to help them with each of the five questions on their educational journey. And the five questions are the guiding principle of their educational program. There's another dog who's introduced to tell the story about how the five questions came to be. And they tell the story of a dog named Sapientia Stoltitia. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm not going to remember that. Or Double S, who created the five questions to help educate dogs because cats were getting educated by sort of learning from humans because cats can read and understand humans better than dogs. And they were using that against dogs. because they're Shocking. Like, yeah, because <laughs> there existed more enmity between dogs and cats back then than even now. And so Double S decided to create five questions to help dogs gain wisdom so they could hold their own against cats and reduce the gulf between them. Well, I appreciate the concept. So the five questions are as follows. What is the true nature of the divine? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of love? Which is superior breed of canine? What is the best dog food? 
<laughs> Why? Like, okay. The first three questions are normal, I guess, questioning your life questions. Like, why Why would there be a superior dog question? Well, to create racial conflict, Danielle, which we're about to get to. <laughs> Clearly. But to be fair, though, I totally buy that they'd have a question for dogs about which is the best dog food. That's a no, very No, I didn't question. even question that one. You noticed <laughs> it didn't even come in my conversation. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we're both like, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> I just, I'm like, not 100% like why they would have the other one in there. Yeah, no, that one is, is, is weird, but here we are. There could have been any other question in there, but here we are. So when the fourth question comes up, all the, the mongrels and mutts, they let out a tremendous howl, taking great offense at this, while the purebreds all react differently. Some of them are like patient, some of them are, are sympathetic, some of them are like aggressive and angry about that, uh, and there's almost violence. So, you know. You could have like... T- I just feel like you could have easily not had the conflict had you not had that question as one of your five tenants. <laughs> but Danielle, it's tradition. It's an ancient question of dog philosophers. We can't change traditions to be less racist. We can't take down old statues or teach things differently because of tradition. Well, they shouldn't have put the question in there in the first place. <laughs> oh, well, that's in the past, Danielle. And now it's traditional. It's part of their history. Take it out. Learn a new question, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, disingenuous arguments are fun. All right, so now we cut to that night at the K Fung Research Lab. The sprites are breaking in through a vent. There are a bunch of sprites, and I'm just going to read you all their names, Danielle, so good luck. Aww. Are they important? Are these really necessary? <laughs> Some of them might be. Most of them are not. But I'm not going to tell you which ones are important, because that's funny or not to. <laughs> this is terrible. There's Cobweb, Saffron, Macduff, Hamlet, Puck, Moth, Mustard Seed, Moonshine, Lennox, Ross, Angus, Kate, Menteeth, and the animal handler Wakinetta and her apprentices, Rosaline, Maria, and Catherine. These are some random names. It is an incredibly diverse array of names. <laughs> it's like he just pulled them out of a hat. <laughs> <laughs> With a bunch of like Shakespearean names in there from Yeah, Moonstone I think it'd Street. be less weird if there weren't Shakespearean names thrown in them. Like if there was just a bunch of random names, no harm, no foul. But there's a whole run of Shakespearean names. And why? <laughs> <laughs> and and to be fair, like most of them are like, oh, they'll be like the sprites from Midsummer's Night Dream, which makes sense that they have like cobweb and mustard seed and puck and everything. But like Hamlet and Macduff, it just seems like a weird callbacks to some like why why bring in Macbeth and Hamlet? I don't know, it's weird. Anyway, Wakanetta warns them not to free anything too large unless they're trained to animal control and they have at it opening cages and freeing animals, there is a spare moment where they consider that, hey, you know, freeing animals that are domestic, like guinea pigs, and release them into the wild, I means you're just going to die from starvation because they have no survival skills. But they're like, eh, they'll die anyway in the lab, so okay, doesn't matter. Which That's- I think is a pretty weak <laughs> argument. <laughs> Maybe an argument for another day. <laughs> Like, I'm not here to argue for or against animal testing, but I'm going to argue that just releasing animals to die is not doing them a favor. No, it's not. So the sprites guide the freed animals out through the vents or out to freedom by using their latent telepathic abilities that all animals and sprites possess, as we remember from part one. Yes. Yes, latent telepathic abilities from part one. Do you remember the the especially psychic dog that could see the future? Vaguely. (laughs) Malcolm. I just bring him up now because he'll never come back up again. I wanted to to mention him. don't usually give dogs or creatures or humans the ability to see the future and then never use them again in your plots. (laughs) 
uh, all the time, Danielle, with everything that I've ever written. I'm pretty sure it's a common trope. <laughs> it's so common, it's a cliche at this point. While Wakaneta is considering freeing some kittens, despite how dangerous they are to sprites due to their, you know, being cats, Cobweb is showing off up on the top shelf for Saffron by doing backflips and popping locks open at the same time because, you know, I guess he's horny. <laughs> I mean, yes. The entire, his entire character is like that. Well, so this is Cobweb who paid Puck to watch him have sex with Saffron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now it's his turn, he thinks. So what a twisted web Cobweb weaves. A twisted Cobweb, if you will. <laughs> In doing so, he accidentally opens a cage of rats, like giant, massive Norwegian rats. And one of the rats lunges out and Thought screams at Cobweb, I thresh, thresh ends you, before tearing into him and just killing him outright. Oh, wow, that was sad. And then his body fades from existence, because Sprite's bodies fade when they die, for whatever reason. Poor Sprite. Cobweb. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Cobweb. He webs no more. Yes, indeed. The rats swarm out and attack the sprite. Some of the rats just jump off the high shelf, killing themselves in their bloodlust, which doesn't really feel like what rats would do. Rats are very smart, and yeah. most animals don't leap to their death for no reason. Yeah, that's well, maybe they've been genetically modified, Sam. Um, sure. I have no answer <laughs> to that. The book provides no answer to that. They're in a science lab, right? Yeah, um... Uh, I don't think that's usually what happens with this in the eighties. But... <laughs> so the sprites fight back, but Mustard Seed is killed. Oh no, Mustard Seed! We need you for three seconds. How sad. Cobweb and Mustard Seed, we miss you <laughs> so much. Uh, Wakinada releases the kittens to fight off the rats, which does not go well because <laughs> oh, they're kittens, kittens against giant rats, and they immediately get set upon by the rats. That is so sad. What a terrible idea. There had to have been other animals to use. No, Arkaya's like, no, nah, these kittens can handle it. Uh, <laughs> but apparently the kittens act as a distraction long enough for Puck and the others to like use their crossbows to murder all the rats. Before all the kittens die. <laughs> uh, except for Thresh, who escapes. And Thresh will come back. Or not. Maybe he goes the no, way Thresh of the definitely dog, comes but <laughs> it's the future. Malcolm. Sure. Okay. Does it matter, Sam? <laughs> nope. I'm going to keep pointing it out. <laughs> However, Puck is too late to save Saffron who is dying in a pool of her own blood. Oh no, Saffron. Before dying, she manages to say, he's still alive. They buried him in the boneyard, but couldn't kill him. Pandora's box is opening soon. And then she dies without saying anything actually useful, as is as tradition. always. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like just once you'd like to see something where they just say the actual thing as they're dying. Who is he? I don't know. Go figure it out. Why does Saffron know? Who knows? Uh, I believe that Thresh probably invaded her mind. Like, he, his thought screaming probably, like, terrorized her, and he projected images or something into her mind. Can he do it, like, apparently he can do it thought-specific to one thing and not all of them? I don't know, Danielle. <laughs> it doesn't go into any details for how she knows, but I'm assuming it has something to do with Thresh. Or why does Thresh know? I don't know that either. Because he's a rat. I just like feel like in books and movies, oftentimes the rats just know all the bad stuff. That is absolutely 100% how this book works. <laughs> See? <laughs> we don't have to read the book, Sam. I already know. Yeah, pretty much. So meanwhile, George is hanging out with the Bohemians and the Blue Zebras at a local bar called The Fever Dream, but it's spelled F-E-V-R-E. So it's French? <laughs> Fever Dream. Fever Dream. It's named for some book that I forget about. I don't care. There is a book called Fever Dream. That's it, I think, then. So he's chatting with Aphrodite, the bohemian minister of love, who wears a red Velcro-covered long coat. So when she hugs you, you stay hugged, which is creepy. <laughs> and would instantly be covered in all kinds of, like, hair. Yeah, that is weird. It'd be so gross immediately. Are you still thinking about the title again, Danielle? Yeah, because I've read that book, but I didn't realize it was written by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> 
I just looked it up because I was like, I owned that book for a long time. It was when on was my it bookshelf. Written? It was written in 1982. Okay. It could be that book. It could be a different one. I don't have to remember. Sorry. But there is a book called Fever Dream that I've read. It's about vampires. That might be it. I honestly don't know. It's, it's well known. Anyway, I was just... You got to learn how to pay attention. I had Danny. no idea. I had no idea it was in my door. George R. R. Martin. I just like... Okay, anyway. <laughs> okay, back to this story. <laughs> oh, safe, if it was the same one I recall. Every, like, <laughs> if we're going to stop for every illusion this book makes, we're never going to get through it. Well, I was just excited that that was something that I was familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she asks George about the rose, the white rose that fell on his lap from earlier, and George just misses it. I was like, nah, it's just some weird coincidence. Mm-hmm, but sure. a second later, the most beautiful woman in the world walks into the bar. And everyone stops and stares at her. Calliope. Calliope. George is sure she came here for him. And as they kiss, every light in the bar goes out. And then she disentangles herself from him and vanishes as the lights come back on. So she just (gasps) walked across the bar, made out with him, and left. Yeah. Okay. Just being Name of the chapter is Kiss in the Dark. So there you go. Okay. Things in this book are very, like, slow boil. They allude to them happening, and, like, a hint of them happens, and then they actually happen. Like, everything has to be, like, three or four times alluded to before anything actually happens. Perfect. So Calliope has kissed him, and now he's going to be, now she's going to break his heart so he can write more? Or some, or be, or be spurred to greatness in some manner. Got it. We now return to the next chapter called Making Flippy Floppy. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. The the common term. This this uh, chapter opens with a comment that despite their reputation, liberal arts colleges are full of virgins, and you can spot them by the way they lace their shoes. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, I haven't changed the way I lace my shoes since I first learned to like tie my shoes as a kid, so I really don't know what that says about me, but I don't think it says anything about my virginity. I think people just tie their shoes how they tie their shoes. <laughs> I, yep. I agree. I've done the exact same shoe tying since I was a kid. <laughs> So I, but this book asserts differently. Well, maybe you want to tie your shoes like a virgin because you learned it as a kid. If you learned it as an adult, Danielle, you would know how to tie your shoes differently. <laughs> that must be it. Anyway, two tanker trucks, one containing an experimental human pheromone and the other containing the primary ingredient of feminine hygiene spray, collide on the highway, creating a cloud of gas that makes everyone super horny in the town. I'm 100% sure that's not how anything works. No. But it is how this book works. It makes everyone so super horny that the campus store sells out of condoms and people start buying rubber gloves, which is not a suitable substitute. Don't do it, people. (laughs) No. There are so many reasons that's a bad idea. Not, I I won't even get into it because we don't have time, but no, just absolutely not. That is our uh, moral lesson for the day. Not moral moral lesson, that's just a life tip. A a life tip, yeah. (laughs) Do not do that. Do not substitute anything for a condom. Just use a condom. (laughs) Crazy. Well, you know what? Your town wasn't infiltrated by uh, horny drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Horny drugs. I don't know what else to call them. I mean, that's accurate. (laughs) So George is sitting at home when Calliope appears in his living room, probably by climbing through a now open window wearing nothing but a small silver whistle on a necklace. And they immediately go at it. Puck, meanwhile, is moping up in his home high in the rafters of Barton Hall. Zephyr comes to see him to console him. The funerals for the dead sprites had recently been concluded. At Saffron's funeral, her brother Laertes and Puck got into a duel because, sure. But all Puck does is ask Zephyr, are you still mad at me about Saffron? And she replies, I don't want to be, especially after all that's happened, but I am. What you did hasn't changed. Which, yes, what he did hasn't changed. And 
you don't have to feel bad about that, nor do you have to want to change it if you don't feel like you should. <laughs> Agreed. Are they not affected by the random drugs? Apparently not. <laughs> I guess the human pheromones, Danielle, not Sprite pheromones. Well, you never know. I don't know. There's a lot of maybe a crossover there. She wants to have sex with the human, I mean. Kind of. I don't know, Danielle. I can't. I don't know, but apparently not. That's all I got to say. Okay. So Zephyr suggests that to repair the relationship, they do something Hobart recommended, which is to pretend to be strangers and then meet up later. Like, okay, I'm going to go to this bank and you come there and we'll pretend to be strangers and we'll start all over. And she's like, these strangers, they have to be very faithful. And Puck is like, there wouldn't be any problem with cheating, I'm sure. And I'm like, first, why? You haven't proven that you can't not cheat, for one. That's true. And also, just basically just ignoring the problem, pretending it doesn't exist, like, fix it. The answer to that is no. Does she, does she like him? I, I guess she does, but she's also like mad at him. It's, uh, it's all weird, weird. And she's also like, she realized that George now has a girlfriend in Calliope. And she's like, I guess I have to go back to Puck. No. Are they girlfriend? I mean, she, she literally just appeared in town. <laughs> Maybe it's been a few days. I don't know. It's very... The timeline makes no sense. Did she so, hear about the making out? How does she even know? Zephyr just knows, although she hasn't seen Calliope because Calliope doesn't want to be seen. She knows that George is occupied is all... We get it from that. Sure. Whatever. I know. So that's what they do. They go and pretend to start the relationship over. Meanwhile, the dogs are getting ready to visit Lady Babylon, who is essentially like a doggy madam with her brothel, which is her litter. It's very weird. That seems questionable. <laughs> it's very questionable. <laughs> Luther is not feeling up to it because he's all sad about like, maybe this isn't heaven. I, I saw all the discontent and he's like having second thoughts. But Rover Too Bad, a dog who speaks with Jamaican Rasta accent, which is one I will definitely not be doing. Thank you very much. <laughs> tried to talk him into it. A question about the doggy brothel. Do they sure. not get pregnant? I mean, I'm sure they do. Because that seems like it'd be a sure thing almost yeah. immediately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> be a short-lived like... job. <laughs> well, I mean, they give birth and you're back at it, I guess. I know, but you're... Maybe they can keep having sex when they're pregnant. I don't know how that works with dogs. I mean, I imagine dogs, they go into heat and they can go at it. And then maybe like they're, they're cycle. I don't know, Danielle. I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I have some questions about the doggy brother. <laughs> I, I don't have answers. I doubt the author has answers to those questions, Danielle. I think it was just put in there as like a thing. Right. Anyway, sorry. Continue on. You know, I get sidetracked by the weirdest things. <laughs> and things are not relevant at all. <laughs> That was relevant. I'll give you that one. So Luther is moping around because he's having doubt. He's talking to Rover too bad. And that's when the other dog, one of the other dogs, makes a casually racist comment about like him being able to last longer than most dogs during sex because of his kind. It's like, what do you mean by my kind? But the other dogs are all off to go see Lady Babylon and he does not get an answer from this person. He's like, oh no, I sense mange thoughts. How can this be heaven? Uh Uh-oh. Yep. Poor Luther. He wanted it to be perfect and it's not. It's not. So bad for him. So we cut back to George, who is standing in his window naked. The house is in shambles, like utterly destroyed from their vigorous lovemaking, which sounds just like awful sex, like (laughs) not fun or comfortable. (laughs) That's ridiculous. It's terrible. And he's worried that Calliope is too perfect. He knows that she'll like conform to his perfect ideal of a woman. Like he'll like everything that he likes, but not too much so he can self-interest in conversations. And he's like, this all makes him doubt like how real she is. He demands to know what's the price of their relationship. Like, what is the price you'll have to pay for this fantasy that is Calliope? And she demurs, but says, you're already in love with me. Even if it meant your death, you can't deny your feelings. And George's like, will it mean my death? And she says, maybe. I'll teach you a few things, then leave, and you'll want to die, but he won't let you. You're caught in a story, but if it ends happily or in a nightmare, it's up to you. So, okay. So- so he knows that she's not, like, human? I don't know she's not human. She knows that, like, she is something fantastical that is planning to leave him to destroy him. 
okay. emotionally. Yeah, he's like, nah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and George's like, so like, what, you're a prologue? And she's like, yep, that's it. And that's all he cares. He's like, sure, cool, good with that. You're a prologue. How would you like to be the prologue in somebody's life? I have no idea. But apparently that's enough for George. He just goes along with it, and that's the end of the chapter, make it flippy floppy. Well, you know what? He uh, controls the wind. He's fine with weird, uh, esoteric, odd things. One thing about this book is that the characters, I guess they're used to it in their world, but they accept the weirdest stuff just like as wrote. Like, yep, that makes total sense. What's flippy floppy? Is it a euphemism? It's definitely, it's, it's supposed to be euphemism for sex. I would uh, 100% guarantee. Okay, just making sure I'm on the same page as the author. <laughs> Look, there are so many pages in this book, Danielle, it'd be hard not to be. <laughs> Funny. All right, next chapter. Two houses. The Bohemians are on a diplomatic mission. There's a frat that wants to make them honorary members. Guess which frat it is, Danielle? The frat that was mentioned earlier? The rat no. one? The other one. The uh, no. girl one. Nope. I don't know. It no. is the nerdiest frat ever, the Tolkien House. Oh, well, how would I ever guess that, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you would, but I just really wanted to set it up because, boy, this book is going to take a hard left turn into Tolkien Town right now, Danielle. Choo-choo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, on a train, because trains can make left turns in, in an impromptu fashion. <laughs> They're not on tracks or anything. It could be like a good a, a train that has more... I don't know, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to figure that one out, Danielle. <laughs> oh, gosh. My brain's not working at full speed, much like this train would not be at full speed to make a left-hand turn that quickly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so ZZ Top is a huge Lord of the Rings nerd, and he's very excited about going to see Tolkien House. The house is set back away in the woods, and it's very private. So the Bohemians have been invited en masse. It's very strange. It, like, portends big things. Is this, like, a real place, or is it made up no. of the story? Okay. Oh, how... Danielle, that won't even be a question by the time I get finished with this description. (laughs) (laughs) The house looks like a large stone fortress with towers and turrets, and the words inscribed on the cornerstones of Minas Anor and Minas Ithil. Okay. The main entrance is large double doors with the inscription Pedo Milan a Mino, which top translates from whatever Tolkien language it is as say friend and enter, which is the famous riddle that he actually gets wrong. And I, I mean, I could be wrong here, but my memory is that it's speak friend and enter, which makes more sense as a riddle than say friend and enter, which is just an instruction. <laughs> Because the whole riddle is you say the word friend as opposed to like, you know, speaking as a friend. But anyway, it's weird that the book gets that detail wrong. <laughs> you, as a listener, feel free to let us know. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Sam and I biggest... are not Tolkien <laughs> <Yeah>. experts. <laughs> We're not big Lord of the Rings fans or experts, so I could be wrong about that. But that just seemed to be the, the thing that like, wait, that doesn't, how, how is that a riddle? Say friend and enter is just a, a very clear instruction. Anyway. As they say friend, the doors swing open by themselves and they go inside. And inside the entry hall... There is a big sign that says Entry Hall and Michael Delving Matham Hole. And a Matham Hole is apparently a Hobbit library or, or museum. So we're getting really deep into the weeds here. Yes, apparently. Don't love that. And as Lionheart reaches for the doorknob into the Matham Hole, it opens by itself and they're welcomed inside by the three presidents of Tolkien House. They're Shen Han, Amos Nold Doran, and Lucius Durand. So good luck, Danielle. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to remember any of those. They're wearing robes because they're dressed like Tolkien nerds. And they each have a giant ring because, again, Tolkien nerds <laughs> with a big gem in them. 
You're just going to finish every sentence with because Tolkien nerds. <laughs> Danielle, this whole chapter could just be titled because Tolkien nerds, <laughs> which is, again, not a combination of Tolkien nerds, but these people, it feels like their entire personality is that they like a thing. And I have issues when you make your entire personality that you like a piece of work. It's fine to love something. I, I'm a big fan and a big nerd for lots of things, but if that's like the extent of your personality, then I find you quite dull. <laughs> You should leave me out to dry on that one, aren't you? Uh, no, no, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are. I'm in so much trouble now. <laughs> I don't disagree, Sam. I was just, I was thinking about Tolkien. <laughs> Why? I was thinking about the Tolkien, like people that I know that like Tolkien. We're all of. wonderful people and have personalities that are greater than just liking oh, Tolkien. Sure. Yes, absolutely. The people that, I know the that point like I'm Tolkien at. like other things as well. <laughs> yeah. Or like have interesting thoughts and stuff that aren't about Tolkien. They can talk about things that aren't Tolkien for, right. you know, more than 10 minutes. Anyway, there are a bunch of artifacts from Tolkien's works in glass cases in this museum, except for one, which is lying on a pedestal at the exact center of the hall in a glass case is a broad shining spearhead with no identification on it. So okay. it's a mysterious object. Uh, the <laughs> Yes, thank you, Danielle, for the... <laughs> ignore it too <laughs> i was going to danielle because like your theremin impression is very good but i don't know if you need this commentary uh, i love the things you choose to ignore you're just like so used to my weird noises that you ignore i, I got uh, danielle if i chose to acknowledge everything you did it would all it would be all i do <laughs> Sorry, continue on. Spear in the middle. Yep. They're being served by a dwarf <laughs> butler because every fraternity house has a butler. Yeah, I guess so. Very common occurrence, I hear. And they're talking about the history of Tolkien House and how it was founded by the lady, a mysterious woman. It was started being built in 1936. And ZZ Top is like, well, that can't be because Lord of the Rings wasn't even published until the late 50s. So, ooh. ooh, mystery. And they're like, nah, we don't really think about that very much. How weird. And Chen Han, the one of the presidents, is like, you know, it's just part of the mystery. Like, no magic, no mystery. So we just sort of let the mystery fly to, to have more magic in our lives. Is the house magic? Boy, Danielle. <laughs> we're about to find out. So they say, okay, we're all here. Thank you for coming. We have much to talk about. Why don't you come with us to Lothlorien where we can talk? So they get into a big elevator that is covered in obsidian slabs and it takes them very far down into the earth. And it opens up into a completely dark cavern. Mm -hmm. And Chen takes a lantern out, like a gas lantern, and lights it. And even then, they can't see how big the cavern is. He's like, oh, it's part of the mysteriousness of it. We keep it dark. So as they're walking along in the dark, suddenly they come to this giant chasm underground with a single low bridge across it. And it's Khazad-Dum, you know, the, the big chasm where Gandalf falls into in, in the mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings. And they're like, oh, that's kind of dangerous. And they're like trying to look down and see if they can see the bottom. And they're like, is it, it just can't really be bottomless, can you? And the Tolkien House president like, ah, it's another one of our magic mysteries. Even though they can like hear wind like whistling down the chasm. So maybe it really is bottomless. I like the idea that it's not a magic house and somebody just dug a really deep hole to make this With house no for railings. Fun. Like there's no <laughs> way it would ever fly. Like in a frat house where they hold drunken parties in this area, there'd be like 30 dead students a semester who would trip and fall into a bottomless chasm. It's 100%. crazy. The school would never let this, not even in the 80s, would the school let this exist? No, no one would even let it. It'd be like one kid would trip and die and, and it'd be like over. The house would be shut down. The, the fraternity would be disbanded. Like schools can do that. <laughs> 
Magic House. Maybe it doesn't look like that way when the uh, you know president of the school comes and checks it out. Quite possibly. Maybe they bribe him. I don't know. Because oh, money possible. seems to solve all of everyone's problems <laughs> in this book. <laughs> For the far end of the bridge is a giant stone door, and they open it up to reveal a wooden glade inside underground, like an underground forest covered with stars above, and immediately apparent to Lionheart that there's a dome. That works like the Hayden Planetarium, where projectors make it look like there are stars and the sky can be changed. And Chan's like, yeah, we can totally control the weather. We can create fog. We can create rain. We can create, you know, light, you know, dawn or dusk or night and make meteor showers. It's like a magic dome. This is all underground. All underground. Okay, sure. I don't know how the trees survive without sunlight, but here you are. (laughs) Maybe it has fake sunlight built in that works too grow them maybe i don't know it's all it's get magic left, sam it's magic yeah, come on it's actually 100% that we definitely left reality at this point <laughs> but also this feels like a tolkien nerds fan fiction about like oh wouldn't it be cool if i had a house and an underground forest and like casa doom be so cool actually it kind of feels like it turned into ready player one or two <laughs> yeah nope i mean which is exactly what i'm talking about it's the exact same thing danielle there's no books <laughs> whose whole personalities are they like things yep so they all gather uh, around in a clearing surrounded by a tall hedge. It has a bowl in it filled with water, which is Galadriel's mirror, because again, I won't say it, but you know why. (laughs) Tolkien nerds. There you go. (laughs) Momentarily, Lionheart is distracted by a large pale mannequin in a dominatrix outfit that is leaned up against one of the trees in the glade. Totally part of the Tolkien mythos, if I recall. Well, this is why Lionheart's like, hey, what's that about? And one of the presidents explains that a while ago, there had been a bunch of protests against fraternities for being sexist and, you know, misogynistic. And Tolkien House was feeling left out of that targeting because no one cared about because like, oh, there's to- Tolkien nerds. They're not like a regular Greek house. And so they purchased the custom sex doll as a joke to show like, hey, we can be sexist too. And that's supposed to be a, a funny joke. Yeah, it's so funny. Are there any I girls know. in this entire fraternity? Like, is it no, just a, my like a male? Fraternities I know, I know girls. that, but I was just wondering if it was like a co-ed one. No, but they did invite like the gray ladies came along, like Miyoko and Fujiko are there with Lionheart and, and ZZ Top and everyone to mm-hmm. have this meeting. So there are women present. Okay. <laughs> they Charming. just don't seem to have an opinion that matters. <laughs> Love this book. And also, just for fun, the uh, mannequin is holding a bowl of condoms. So, you know, yay. Oh, see, they could have used those back in the city earlier. So, Lionheart says, let's get to the point. Why did you invite us to this meeting? And Shen Han's like, we told you already, we want you to become honorary members of our fraternity. And Lionheart's like, why? That's, you know, why did you ask us to do that? And finally, one of the other presidents, Nildorin, steps forward and brings Lionheart over to the bowl of water and tells him to look inside of it. And suddenly the bowl lights up as projected images come into it, like a, like a slideshow, but it's like fading from one to the other, which is a magical technology in the 80s because they couldn't do projectors that faded from one thing to the next. Fancy. And so staring into the water, he sees pictures of the Tolkien house and it sort of zooms out to see Ithaca. And then it zooms out on Risley Hall, which is where the Bohemians live. And then it zooms in to show the face of Fujiko. So apparently, Noldoran is in love with Fujiko and his way of getting to know her is to invite all the Bohemians to join the fraternity. <laughs> or <laughs> he could just go out in the world and meet them. <laughs> I know. And like... Lionheart's like, what are you doing? That's crazy. I will introduce you to her for free. She's unattached. I can just do that for you. It's not a problem. It's like the most complicated solution to an easy problem. No, and Lionheart's like, no, I'll, like I said, he says, I'll just, I'll do it. I'll just introduce you to her. 
but they're like, no, nah, no, nah, it's in the spirit of it. We just want to make the trade because it feels more like in the spirit of it. That's, that's literally the only explanation they give as to why they're doing this. Eh, I disagree. <laughs> it is weird. I don't know why they even like consider this. But before they agree to join, Lionel has some questions. He first asks about how they feel about the rat frat, Roalpha Tau, because they're you know other Greek. They're still part of the Greek system, even though they are a Tolkien fantasy house. I, I don't know how that factors into it. But they're like, no, we don't like them because everyone hates them. He's like, good. And then let me ask you one very serious question before I agree to join your frat with my Bohemians. And I'll be able to tell if you're lying just by looking at your face because apparently that's a power I have. Okay. Do the girls get to join the fraternity? See, like yes. doing an open invitation. Okay. <laughs> so all the Bohemians become honorary members, not Got actual it. members, right. honorary members. And Lionheart looks him in the face and says, has there been a rape here at Tolkien House? And he goes on to explain about how like, you know, sometimes at fraternity parties, a woman gets really drunk or maybe some people get her really drunk. And then when she's passed out or, or, you know, not at her best, they'll take advantage of her. So he basically explains the concept of date rape to these guys. Right. And they're like, nope, never happened here. And he's like, cool. In that case, we're in. Because apparently uh, Lucius correctly guesses that you've had something bad happen to you. One of your members, you know, someone who had a bad experience at a fraternity house. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yep. And I want to make sure I never be part of anything that, that is part of that same kind of system. To be fair, I mean, I'm not saying that they're lying, but would a fraternity be like, yep, that's totally happened here. <laughs> like, it, yeah. would you answer that question? I get but that Lionheart, he's supposed to be like be able to tell a lie. I get it. Yeah, that's why I was like, I can totally tell if you're lying. So it's totally cool. But like, also, maybe they wouldn't necessarily even know about it. Like, if they have a giant rager and they all get blackout drunk, how do they know? That's certainly true. I don't think they're having giant ragers. To be Danielle, fair, they absolutely do have giant ragers. <laughs> We're, we're, we'll get to one, I promise. <laughs> Maybe they're just having it now because they all have honorary members. Maybe it's their first one, Sam. No. <laughs> so anyway, they agree to join the Tolkien House's honorary members. So now we cut to a chapter that is talking about the history of Ro Alpha Tau, the Rat Frat, which is actually... Uh, the, the Greek letter Rho is actually a P, so it should be the Pat Frat, but everyone calls it the Rat Frat for reasons we'll get into. This book goes all over the place. It is so wild. So Ruafatal was founded by Patrick Barron, whose father made a small fortune in coal mining. So, you know, money again. It came into uh, being in the last days of the McCarthy era and was a big fan of red baiting for people. So, you know, already starting off strong with the white supremacy and the na <laughs> uh, white nationalism. <laughs> when Martin Luther King was assassinated... They had a Martin Luther King party, which was a quote-unquote very exclusive affair where they all dressed up in costumes and the vice president showed up in blackface wearing a bloodstained shirt to no. represent Martin Why? Luther King. They're yeah. terrible. They're the like Again, cartoonishly evil, Daniel. <laughs> so bad. I don't like it. In the spring of the following year, Cornell made national headlines when a group of militant black students staged a takeover of the Willard Strait Hall during the Parents' Weekend. And this is actually an event that happened. The author makes mention of this in the foreword for this book, that these are based on actual events. There was a black student takeover, even though the rat frat wasn't the actual, didn't exist, and wasn't involved in this. Another fraternity did get involved in part of the route of the students from the hall. Mm -hmm. I don't know the history of Cornell well enough to make any comments on what, how much of this is true or isn't. I'm just going to go with what this book says and leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> so the vice president of 
the rat frat from earlier, who is now the full president, led a commando force of 25 row alpha taus into the hall to try to, you know, throw out the black students who had taken it over. They immediately get just, you know, rejected, thrown out of the building, fail immediately, absolutely comically bad at it. <laughs> and then rumors fly about maybe getting, like, guns to try to get the students out. And so the black students import some guns until the tensions rise. Eventually, things get resolved without bloodshed, but it made national headlines and, and basically created a whole, like, hullabaloo on campus where it might have gotten that much attention if it hadn't been blown out of proportion by the reaction of the Ruafa Taos. Uh, and then some weeks later, one of the black students from the takeover went and painted a leg on the P of the Pat Frat's house to make it into an R, and that's how they got the name Rat Frat. Now we know. Now we know. So is that whole story just to tell you how the Rat Frat got yes. its name? <laughs> and to establish their character as awful, awful people. <laughs> And now we get to the backstory about why the Bohemians hate them. Because two years prior to the alliance, there was a party happening on Fraternity Row, and a great lady at the time named Pearl was drunk and wandering from party to party and ended up at the Rat Frat, where one of the brothers named Jim Richland let her inside, plied her with more alcohol until she was good and drunk, and then she blacked out. And then she woke up the next day, not sure what happened, how many of the brothers were with her or, or what happened to her. So she was clearly traumatized. And because of that, she left the Bohemians and then dropped out of this university and left the school. That's so sad. Yeah, so a truly awful thing that happened. And so that sort of establishes the relationship between Lionheart, who swore vengeance on Roa for how they had treated one of his people, and especially against Jack Barron, the president of the uh, rats. Totally fair. Or the, the kid that got her drunk. <laughs> like... Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Again, Danielle, it's not clear who's responsible for any of these things. Okay. All right, next chapter. Let's just move on. Lighten things up a bit, because this chapter is not at all disturbing. <laughs> What's it called? Jinsei and the Black Knight. Okay. So we cut back to Mr. Sunshine. He's in his library. He's making some notes on the story of the fool on the hill. And he adds two sentences. He types, set Ragnarok up against Jack Baron. And then Ragnarok's trial is not George's trial. To like establish that these are two separate people on their own separate plots. And they are not the same. Okay. I'm glad we established that. It was important. So now we cut to Jinsei, who is going to a dance with Lenny Chu. He is a student that she fished out of a seemingly cloned engineering students who are all nerdy and wore steel room glasses because stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are common. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't actually know if she likes him. She just, like, picked him at random. But Lenny is totally into her. So, you know, what a great, what a great thing. It might be. You don't know. See how the night turns out. Possibly. They are headed towards the Cornell Asian American United Dance to go celebrate as their first date. The Bohemians are there, too, uh, with the gray ladies, who apparently are all Asian women, because mm -hmm. reasons? I don't know. <laughs> this they book are. does some really <laughs> weird stuff with race that I cannot explain. And as Jinsei and Lenny walk up the stairs to go to the party, out of the doors comes Jack Barron and two of his lackeys, Bill Cheney and Bobby Shelton. So okay. <laughs> I don't know why Jack is there at the Cornell Asian American United dance, but apparently it felt like an event that he wanted to attend for some reason. I like these super like white jock evil 1980s boys names. <laughs> yeah, right. Jack Barron, Bill Cheney, the house treasurer and Bobby Shelton, a lineman for the big red football team. Yeah, exactly. It's they 100% seem like football players <laughs> in an 80s movie. <laughs> 
Oh, so Bobby sees Lenny and throws an apple core at him and smacks him right in the head. And it might have been the end of it if Lenny had just sort of ignored him. But Lenny, being accompanied by Jinsei, feels the need to like perform as a man or something. Uh-huh. Some stupid machismo <laughs> crap. And he goes up to Bobby is like, you apologize for that. And Bobby's like, no. <laughs> Shocking. That didn't work. <laughs> And then he calls him uh, a racial slur, and so Lenny whips the apple back at his head, but Bobby catches it in midair and then crushes the apple in his hand, like completely pulverizes the core. <laughs> and then, although Jack Barron could have stopped Bobby, he doesn't. And for what, and Jack's like, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, he felt like he shouldn't stop Bobby this night when he normally would have, and lets Bobby sort of go over and start pummeling on Lenny. Perfect. Inside the dance, Ragnarok is talking with Panhandle, and Panhandle's like, hey, you want to go play? <laughs> some pool these names man right the <laughs> self-appointed names that the bohemians give themselves and panhouse like hey you want to get out of here and go play some pool there's a pool table outside upstairs and they're like sure let's do that as they approach the stairs to go to the pool table ragnarok suddenly gets like a sixth sense and like looks out the front door and is like oh someone needs my help we cut to outside where lenny is getting knocked down over and over again by bobby but struggling to get back up and jinsei is like Lenny, just stay down. Let them go away. It's fine. But he's like bloodied and like his pride's on the line. So he keeps getting back up. And then suddenly, as Jinsei's screaming, like, stop it. Leave him alone. The motorcycle revs and the doors burst open. And Ragnarok comes roaring out of the dance hall on his motorcycle and okay. like crashes down <laughs> between the row of towels and Lenny and Jinsei. And I'm like, what? Okay, why so- <laughs> is his motorcycle inside the dance hall to begin with? <laughs> So I have many questions. One, why is the motorcycle inside the dance hall? Yeah. <laughs> Two, so Ragnarok has like magic abilities to know when people need help. <laughs> uh, uh, something like I yes, I guess so. <laughs> this book. Why? Why is it? Why is it inside the motorcycle? Why? Why was it inside? No, I don't know why. But he, he, he had it inside the dance hall and decided to ride it out through the doors <laughs> to make a grand entrance by like leaping over the stairs on his motorcycle to land and like do like a cool skid turn and be like. Leave her alone, dude. Which means he had to, like, drive it up the stairs to get it inside to begin with. I just, it's bizarre. (laughs) Again, this book, my note here says, like, this feels like Michael Bay wrote this part because it's more (laughs) concerned with, like, looking cool than making any sense. And I'm sure that would look cool from an outsider perspective. But, yeah, you can totally see that in a Michael Bay movie, I bet. Like, this is the kind of thing that would happen. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But, hey, it looks cool. Maybe some explosions in the background to make it even cooler. (laughs) So he saves the day. So he lands out there and he confronts Bobby and Bill Cheney and Bobby charges at him, but Ragnarok takes out a mace and just like slams Bobby in the stomach with his mace. It's like tears him out. <laughs> As we do all carry around maces. He is the minister of defense, so. That's true. I'll give him a point. I, I'll pass. I'll give it a pass. <laughs> Maybe he has a mace on him. <laughs> so then when Bill Cheney comes up to him, he does like the cool guy thing, which he lets Bill Cheney like take two free hits on him and he like doesn't phase him. And so then he like lays him out with one punch because he's just so cool. My dad always gets really mad when we watch movies and a, a good guy gets like punched in the face really hard. He's like, that guy would be down. There's not like, <laughs> you don't just keep getting punched in the face over and over and sort like not knocked out. <laughs> He gets really mad about it. Yeah, yes. Your father is right. It's absolutely ridiculous. But boy, does it look cool. (laughs) So then Ragnarok sort of confronts Jack, who is standing back without his goons anymore. And he's like, come at me, Jack. He's like goading him to give him a reason to beat the crap out of Jack. Mm -hmm. But Jack's like, no, I'm not going to give you a reason. If you're going to kill me, you're going to have to do it on your own without provocation. He's like playing it cool, although he's secretly freaking out inside and totally scared. hope so. 
of Ragnarok. So Ragnarok starts like advancing on him and is like, you know what? I don't need to attack you. I'm just going to leave you with fear. <laughs> and he starts like talking about how like you should be frightened of me because, you know, I know that like where you live in Fraternity Row, I know that like there's street lamps there, but they can get broken. It can be dark. And then imagine your <laughs> girlfriend is coming to see you, but she has a flat tire. She has to walk. Something bad might happen to her, right, Jack? And he's like, you leave my girlfriend alone. Don't hurt the girlfriend. It's not her fault. <laughs> Then Ragnarok says, like, it's different when it's one of your own who's, you know, being attacked. Someone you maybe care about. You didn't have the same thought for Pearl or any of our people. So they call him out on hypocrisy about that. Good for them. Oh, but he makes Jack, before he goes, he makes Jack, like, take off his leather jacket and give it to him. Like, give me your jacket before you leave <laughs> as, like, a form of punishment and, <laughs> and, and humiliation. Yeah, just as humiliation. And that's how it ends. Even though Jinch is like, no, don't do that. Just let it go. And he's like, no, give me the jacket. I'm sure it'll come back up. And so at the very end of the chapter, it says about Ragnarok that even though he hated those goons, he also hid himself the most. So, ooh, he's a deep and brooding antihero. So he hated himself the most? Yeah. Ragnarok has a lot of self-hate and self-loathing. Aw, poor Ragnarok. Next chapter, sleep talking. Aurora Borealis Smith is sleeping in her... <sighs> Aurora. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you don't like the name, do you? It's a dumb name. <laughs> She's having a she's having a little sleep in her high security room in the only girl all female dorm on campus. I would like to point out that Aurora Borealis is a perfectly fine name for an actual human being. It's a dumb name for a character in a book. It makes me mad. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know, know why it bothers Borealis me so much. More. Like if I knew an actual Aurora Borealis, that would not bother me in real life. It's just that it's a book character, and it's like you could pick any name in the whole world, and you decided to go with like the craziest of names. But Danielle, it means she's light and magic. Yes, uh-huh. and Smith. And she makes stuff with a hammer. <laughs> it's just so on the nose. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this book not subtle enough for you, Daniel? <laughs> what part of this book makes you think it's subtle? That's why it bothers me, Sam. It's not the actual name. It's it's all of his character names. <laughs> no, this book has a, a, a degree in not what's the opposite of subtlety? Like uh, obviousness? I don't know. Whatever it is, there. We have to kind of go with it because it's the whole tone of the book. Exactly right. This book is is like, oh, look, I'm an allegory, kind of. Not, sort of. <laughs> hey, look, I'm an anyway. allegory. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a book report where I stand in front of the uh, class and go, like, when I'm reading, like, The Lord of the Flies, I'm like, I'm now going to act out The Lord of the Flies. Look, I'm an allegory for evil. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> the end. The end. So, Aurora Borgallis Smith is dreaming. I saw this one point out that her name is ABS, which... I don't think anti-lock breaking systems existed in the 80s, but that's a new abbreviation that her name could mean. My 1985 car would agree with you that I had <laughs> previously <laughs> as a child. <laughs> anyway, so she's dreaming. She's dreaming about being a character in one of George's books. And she's dreaming about like being a sprite in one of his books and seeing George as the knight. And like, I kind of want to go talk to him. He seems like a cool guy. And her father is a tree in her dream and telling her, yeah, go talk to him. He seems like a great guy. Much better than some other stuffy dudes and that's your dream that sounds like <laughs> a dream i would have <laughs> yep you wake up and you're like huh <laughs> so the important part is during her dream she she rolls over and knocks a envelope off her nightstand which says the lady of tolkien house invites you to a halloween revel 10 o'clock halloween night dress casual or come as your favorite elf no rsvp <laughs> required <laughs> those are the two options casual dress or your favorite elf <laughs> Also, uh, Halloween has an apostrophe between the two E's because reasons. Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> it's a Halloween party. 
This sounds like those two wild and crazy guys from the Steve Martin thing from SNL. That's maybe an old reference for people. <laughs> You're so old, Sam. I am. I'm an old soul, Daniel. Aurora had tried to like talk Brian to going to this party. He's like, I don't want to go to a party with those freaks. And eventually they just lifted at, we've got a few months to figure it out. So we'll talk about it later. And she's like convinced that he'll just make plans for them in the meantime, because that's how he operates. And she's like, nope, this time I'm definitely going to this party. Now you know. The Halloween party. The Halloween party. I'm pretty sure that's an actual like spelling. It is 100. percent It's an actual the, spelling. Yeah, that's a spelling of like it's like a contraction for some other term of Halloween. All Hallows Eve kind of thing or something. Yeah, it's, it's, but yes, Halloween is how I'm gonna. <laughs> it's a Halloween yeah, rebel. Rest of my life. <laughs> I will never refer to Halloween as anything else. Get that glottal stop in there. <laughs> Crack ourselves up. <laughs> well, we have to make someone laugh during this show. <laughs> this is what our listeners come for. So, cut to Hobart, who was alone in the clock tower, drinking. Hobart the grandfather. Sprite. Hobart the grandfather of Zephyr. Okay. He is drinking a special mixture of alcohol, hash, oil, and various magic herbs, that which causes gross. hallucinations. So, yay. He's hoping to have visions of his dead wife or his lost human love, but he does not get that. As he nods off to sleep, he finds himself in a nightmare. The sounds of a storm under full fury. More voices from the distant past. He hears them yelling, rats! Rats everywhere! Oh no! That's not good. In the dark, he sees a plain white marble square carved with a single word, Pandora. And he hears one of his old dead friends, a man named Julius, who says, we got bad news. There are rats. He's like, you can't be here, Julius. You're dead. Like, I may be dead, but you know, you drank the magic potion. So, you know, that brought me back to your visions. This is, this is what happens when you drink the magic potion. I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. <laughs> uh, apparently it is. He's not like back from the dead. He's just like a vision visiting him because of the magic hallucination drugs. He's a little bit back from the dead, though. A little bit. Like, this is clearly a warning coming to him through the magic grapevine. Right. And he tells Hobart, like, we never killed him, Hobart. He's like, we never killed him. We just trapped him underground, buried him, but we never actually killed him. And Hobart's like, he has to be dead. No one can survive a hundred years without any food buried underground. And he's like, nope, he's still alive. You don't have to believe me, but he is. That's not good. So he's going to get out, Hobart. He's coming for you. So, you know, here's your warning. Beware the Ides of March, Hobart. <laughs> he's Julius. That's right. That's a, a joke. Uh, that's a funny joke, Sam. Good job. I didn't make the joke, Danielle, so don't <laughs> ask me. And so Hobart is left with this terrible vision of pretending doom. On the Ides of March. On the Ides of March. Okay. Now we go to Ragnarok. Ragnarok's dream. Next chapter. Is so, this just a whole dream chapter where everybody has yes. dreams? Oh, oh, yes. I hate these. <laughs> What was that book that I did that had the girl dreamt 12,000 times? Uh, or was that your watch? dream? Was that the book you did? What was one of the Christopher Pike books? Oh. Oh, the, it was, uh, it was the, uh, the robot one. <laughs> it wasn't the robot one. The, but the robot girl did have a bunch of dreams. Well, it's sort of the one in... Uh, I know, it's a, it's a popular trope with Christopher Pike. <laughs> yeah, because you had a bunch of dreams about like all the people dying. That's how she knew where the skull was. The Hawaiian, the Hawaii one. Yeah, yeah. Murder in Hawaii, whatever it was called. <laughs> It's not called Murder in Hawaii. I, I can't remember the title of that book. <laughs> I can't remember the title of mine either. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, yours was something like, uh, uh, came from the future. I don't know. <laughs> VCRs. <laughs> why, are the, why, why are the Christopher Pike books the ones we can't remember the names for? Because <laughs> they're really generic titles. They are really generic titles. That's true. Well, I'll remember in like 20 minutes and let you know. Sorry. Anyway, dreams. Ragnarok is with Jinsei later after having dropped Lenny out his dorm so he could go in and get cleaned up. Lenny, because of his pride, is unwilling to get checked out at the infirmary because <laughs> men. Boys are dumb. <laughs> yes. Thank you. 
And Genji's like, well, I don't know how to thank you for helping me. He's like, I don't deserve thanks for what I did. All I did was give them a lesson what real bullying is all about. <laughs> okay. And she's like, well, maybe it's not so bad hurting those kinds of people. And he's like, uh, maybe, but they also feel that way about hurting other people. So it's like, that's not justification. She's like, you mentioned that your father had sold your soul to the devil. During his like evil speech, like my father sold his soul to the devil and mine with it. That's why you have to be afraid of me. That's why I'm so evil. Ragnarok? Yeah. Okay. She asked her, okay, what did that all mean? He's like, no, I don't want to tell you. So he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so Ragnarok is uh, is suggesting that his father sold both his own soul and his son's yeah. soul to the devil. Yeah. Are you allowed to sell other people's souls? That was my thought. I'm like, he sold his own soul and a good part of mine. I'm like, that doesn't, like, I don't, don't you think have to that's agree how, to a contract? Yeah, I don't think yeah. like devil mythos actually allows for that to happen. You have to like willingly enter into the contract as far as I recall. That would be my assumption too, Danielle, but what do I know? I've never done it. <laughs> okay, Mr. Ruff, I am not sure I believe this part of your story. So Ragnarok is like, Unless Lenny calls the cops and, you know, turns them in, Jack is not going to remember any of this. He's not going to learn anything from this. He's just going to be, like, angrier and more hate-filled because the only thing Jack really fears is the Interfraternity Council or whatever coming down on him for some reason. Like, that's his big bugaboo. <laughs> Who cares about the police or anything above that? I know. And so she's like, before you go, Ragnarok, who's going to cheer you up? It looks like you're so sad. And Ragnarok's like, I don't need cheering up. You go help Lenny. Don't go thinking you're safe here from all the rednecks just because they teach marks over in the government department. You know, it's still like dangerous for people here. Mm-hmm. And Jin starts like crying at this point. Why? I don't know. Because she's like so <laughs> shook up about what happened. Okay, sure. And like feeling Ragnarok's pain. And as that's happening, she like leans forward and she kisses Ragnarok abruptly. And then after a moment, he kisses her back. So, you know, yay. So this is Ragnarok's, his pain is that he, he's a bad person. We're going to get to that right now, Danielle. <laughs> okay. Ragnarok refused to take Jinsei home with him, despite her asking, because he lives alone on the edge of town in an absolute dump of a place. Like, it's, it's you know, full of roaches, it has no running water because he is dirt poor, and this is what he can afford. He can't afford to live in the dorms. Mm -hmm. But he likes this place because he at least got the landlord to agree to let him decorate the way that he wants. And the way he decorates it is like an emo kid in his goth phase, all black. He paints all the walls black. He uses black curtains on the walls to cover up all the light. He uses low wattage bulbs in the lamps to make it as dark as possible. He wears all black so that the only thing that's white in the house is himself. Like he's the only white thing. Everything else is completely black. So he's a vampire. Basically, Yes. <laughs> Okay, song of clear. So he washes up and he goes to bed and he starts having his dreams. And he's like, tries to like keep the dreams at bay, but they come to him anyway. And he dreams about his past growing up in North Carolina. He's a young man named Charlie. He's six years old and he is getting a birthday present from his father. He opens it up and it's a costume. A costume that makes him look like a small ghost with a little red circle and cross above his heart. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> and his father's like, don't you go showing that to anybody unless I say it's okay, partner. He's like, all right, daddy. He's like, I love you, Charlie. He's like, I love you too, daddy. Aww. Your dad's terrible. <laughs> yes. There's the selling your soul to the devil part, Danielle. <laughs> they not literally sold his soul. Well, no, but in, insofar as he's a clan member. <laughs> yes, I mean, but not literally, but metaphorically. Yes, of Got course, it. Daniel. Well, you don't know the story. He maybe that, did. I, 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 I was about to apologize because, yes, you're absolutely right. It could have been literal in the story. That is a fair point. I don't think this story, like, I don't think anything's off the table in the story, Sam. That's 100% fair, Daniel. I cannot deny that. 
So we cut to Charlie and his friends chasing a black kid through the cemetery. Like they're, they're trying to go after him because, you know, they're older now and this is what they do. And it's not good. But when they get to a creek, Charlie has left the others behind and the black kid has defended himself with a knife and manages to cut him across the chest and leaves a long scar on his chest that he still bears to this day. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to his father pacing around his study, and he's holding a book called Ragnarok is Coming, being a comparison of the Norse apocalypse and the decline of the Aryan races in modern North America. So, you know, good family reading. So he went for the reverse by doing the Ragnarok name. Yeah, he's like owning it, kind of. Got it. Or like wearing it as shame. I don't know, but that's sort of the origin of his name. And his father is pacing around looking for something in mounds of leaflets and tracks, and he's writing a note, and the note says the phrase over and over again, like Jack Torrance in The Shining, her only tears are dry tears. So, sure. (laughs) And then we cut to Ragnarok on a date at a cross burning because, yay. As those kids do. Yep. Then we cut to later, Charlie feels pain in his body because his father has stabbed him with a glass shard from a broken mirror. Because he went against the teachings of the KKK? (laughs) Yes, exactly right. So basically, uh, his father had smashed a mirror over him because he has decided to join a lumber company to work for a lumber company owned by a black person. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Good for him. And then... Ragnarok pulls a glass shard out of his shoulder, which again leaves a scar that he still bears to this day. And he says, I love you, daddy. I've always loved you. And his father says, you shame me. And then it ends with his father's blood hot on his fists. So apparently he was beating up his dad at that point. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And that is Ragnarok's dream. Did he kill his dad? Did he just beat him up? No idea. So there's where his shame and self-loathing comes from. Sure, but I mean, he turned it around, so, or I assume it seems like he's turned it around since Yeah, then. but like, he still blames himself and carries a bunch of guilt for it. Well, I get the concept of that, but I also think he's trying his best now. Yeah, and I agree. All right, so I'm going to go with Stephen, George, and the Dragon. That's what it's called? Yep, final okay. chapter. <laughs> of this part. That I'm going to do of this part, even though we're not going to finish the book today, it's too long to finish, we'll finish this book and do the next book in the next part, part three. Sam's on a run, everybody. Hopefully. Hang in there. Oh, gosh. This is going to be a real (laughs) marathon. (laughs) We can do it. You can help. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, by with your pledges, we can help Sam finish this book. Please message me and tell me I'm not alone. I really need the help, guys. I can't handle this. I need to know other people are listening to Sam besides me. Yeah, I, want, I need to know people are listening and I'm just talking into a void here. <laughs> like, if I'm doing all of this for nothing, I'm going to, like, cry. You can do it. It's only a couple more episodes. Apparently there's a dragon in this one, so. Oh, boy. This one is weird. So, <laughs> some three days later, George is busy in his typewriter because apparently he's learned that being in love and happy actually doesn't cause a writer's block for him. and He can still be creative. So, yay. I mean, to be fair, he is dating a muse. Calliope comes in and brings him the mail, setting a package and a white envelope on his desk. And he's like, wait a minute. The, the mailman didn't come yet. And she's like, don't worry about it. I'm magic. <laughs> I'm the mailman. 
So he opens the first envelope, and it's the same invitation that Aurora Boreal Smith got to For the- Halloween. Halloween <laughs> revel in the Tolkien house. I'm so excited about this Halloween party. And at this point, when he sees that invitation from the Lady of Tolkien House, he has a suspicion that the Lady of Tolkien House might be Calliope for some reason. She's in charge of Halloween. She's just the only lady he knows. Like, she is the lady. <laughs> must, she must. Therefore, she must be the lady at the Tolkien House. That's all I got. He's also got a, a, a package from Chicago, and it's addressed to the patron saint of daydreams in Ithaca. And somehow it found its way to him despite that. <gasps> Magic. Magic. Inside is a box, a wooden box that says Pandora on it. <gasps> and he's going to open it. Because he didn't read his classics. (laughs) No, the problem is he did read his classics, Danielle. He's like, I know that all the evil is supposed to be in this, but Pandora already opened the box, and the only thing left in the box is supposed to be hope. So there's hope left in the box, basically, Uh at this uh point. Sure, that's how that works. But he opens the box, and guess what's inside of it, Danielle? Halloween. (laughs) Halloween. (laughs) Yes. I just want to say that as much as humanly possible in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) And next one, probably. Yay! What's inside is a silver dragon. Key. Ah, okay. I was going with key. A silver dragon, about a foot long, very well carved with blue eyes. Um, About a foot long. Oh, in my head, it was like a tidy box, like a jewelry box. (laughs) It was very perplexing. I know, but there you go. Maybe it's curled around to a little bit smaller, but it says it's a foot from tail to snout, so figure it out. Okay. It's a giant box. We asked Calliope, like, hey, who do we know in Chicago who could have sent this? And she's like, uh, maybe the mayor daily? Maybe he liked one of your books and wanted to send you a present. And he's like, I don't think so. I like that he asked her who they knew, like they'd been dating for long enough that she would know who he knows in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he used, I think he's using his weed like, who do you know in Chicago is what he's really getting at. Because right. he's like very suspicious of all of this. Uh, yes, well, he should be. And he's like, you know, dragons can't fly. They're aerodynamically unsound. And she's like, well, you know, bumblebees can fly, but they're aerodynamically unsound. I don't think that's true. <laughs> and we all know that's BS. Bumblebees are totally aerodynamically sound. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's perfectly well understood how they fly. And this comes from this French book or this German scientist who are spreading these rumors around that bumblebees can't fly based on some calculations. That so. apparently Sam looked up the uh, history of so I, that he could like, have, share it one day on the podcast. <laughs> I actually, I, I do I do like dispelling these dumb myths like that bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly or that like people only use 10% of their brains because- like goldfish only have a five-second second memory or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's total BS. But it's not that they're just BS, but if you start to think about it for more than five seconds, they don't make any sense. Like, if we only use 10% of our brain and it uses like 20% of the power of our energy output of our body, what an awful- awful system evolutionarily that would be (laughs) yeah you tell them doesn't make any sense you break that down with science i wouldn't be so upset about that if every freaking movie didn't like what if we unlock the full potential of the brain (laughs) oh no they're suddenly be able to have superpowers because they can use 100 of their brain like no (laughs) stop it stop it bad movies that's why it's carried on sam so that we can create more movies bad cliches anyway i'm sick of those things they annoy me (laughs) tell us how you really feel i just did <laughs> so he's like, Calliope, what's going on here? Are you magic? And she's like, you know, George, I'm not any more magic than you, which he realizes is not an answer. It is not, especially since he has control of the wind. And well, speaking of that, Calliope is like, tell me a story, George, about the first time you called the wind. <laughs> See? 
And so he goes and tells a story about how he's with his uncle Erasmus. Remember him? He's like super aware that he can actually call the wind. Yeah, 100%. He like half believes it. Okay. And he tells about how Erasmus, they had sold a statue that was like a real statue, not one of the concrete squirrels. And he's like, wanted to celebrate by taking George to go fly a box kite, but there was no wind. So after a while, Erasmus is like, hey, we got to make the wind happen, George. You think you can do that? He's like, I can't do that. I'm just a kid because I'm 12. (laughs) And Erasmus is like, well, what would you do if you were a writer? If you're a writer, how would you make the story end? How would you write the end of the story? Would you make it so they never got any wind or would you have a more satisfying ending? And George's like, well, I'd make them have the wind. Maybe I'd have them do some kind of routine or dance to call the wind. So they do it and he calls the wind and he felt like a moment of control while he was doing that as they tried over and over again. One time he felt it like slip into control and he actually made it work. It was like writing without paper. So Very akin to Mr. Mr. Sunshine. Sunshine. <laughs> yes. That's his magic. And so Calliope is like, I'm going to have to teach you how to do that, George. And like, do you think you do that for like other things besides the wind? What if your life depended on it? He's like, well, maybe. Is this the origin story of Mr. Sunshine? No, maybe. I don't remember how it ends. <laughs> I don't remember. I've only read this three times. But I don't think it does. I think it ends in a, in a much less interesting way without him becoming like cursed to be the next Mr. Sunshine, like in the Tim Allen Santa Claus movie where whoever <laughs> kills him becomes him and is cursed forever to live without connection to humankind. I would really like to think that's what happens. It'd be a better story. And then George starts to hallucinate, like the colors in the couch start to blend together and things get all wavy. He's like, did you put something in my tea? And Calliope says, maybe. maybe. <laughs> Just something to expand your mind a little and to help you defend yourself. I'm like, be so mad. (laughs) You do not drug somebody like that. Like, I don't care if you're like a magic muse trying to unlock his hidden potential. Like, that is not okay, Calliope. And he probably would have said yes if she had just asked. Is the stupid part? No, he would 100% on board. He starts hallucinating, and then he notices that aside from everything looking all wavy and weird, the silver dragon is starting to grow and come to life. Yay! Dragons. Does this need to name it Deborah? <laughs> Deborah. Deborah the dragon. The dragon. <laughs> Deborah the dragon. There's a call back to the first overlong book I did that people did not want to slog through, and I don't blame them. I liked that one. I think it got progressively weirder. I think that was like... No, dull. that one was the one where, like, it, it had a lot of payoff, but boy, was there a lot you had to slog through to get to the payoff. Yeah, I like actually the, like, later episodes were much better on that one because that was crazy. It got... It starts out as like generic fantasy and then gets like progressively (laughs) off the rails, which is why I like to do that for the podcast. Uh, Yeah, so stick with us, everybody. They get weirder. (laughs) Usually, like, I mean, again, this book was 100% set up in the first chapter, in the first part. So like, not very interesting. Things are starting to go off the rails here. Deborah. Deborah the dragon. And he's like, Calliope, what'd you do to me? And then she's like, I'm already gone and then vanishes in four's (laughs) eyes. I'm already gone. I'm going to start saying that to people when I'm leaving. <laughs> Where are you going? I'm already yeah. gone. Go <laughs> do the sound. <laughs> so the dragon starts like inhaling and inflating itself and growing bigger and bigger. And without thinking, George just like kicks over the coffee table, sending the dragon and the box flying across the room uh, while he scrambles to like defend himself. And the only thing he can find to, to defend himself with is Calliope's robe, which he grabs. And as the dragon lunges at him, he like entangles it and like wraps it around its neck and starts like choking the dragon out. Sure, why not? It's not as big as like a dog, like a medium-sized dog. And it keeps getting bigger. But the dragon manages to escape from the robe. And as it's disentangling itself, George runs out through the kitchen starts throwing like pop tarts and stuff at the dragon which does nothing and then he runs into his bedroom and like slams the door behind him and like locks the door he's like oh what are we gonna do there was nothing in the kitchen he grabbed knives anything nope. <laughs> nope did not bother with any of that stuff 
Uh, George is not in my apocalypse team. Well, he's about to be because he starts thinking, what was it that Calliope said? Writing without paper? And so he starts thinking to himself, okay, I knew that it'd be a sword on my bed. Nothing happens. And he keeps on thinking about it until finally he has like a moment of crossover again where he thinks not that he wants it to be a sword on his bed, but that there is a sword on his bed. Mm-hmm. It's like he's forming reality around him and suddenly a sword hilt pokes up out of the sheet and a big old sword starts lifting itself out of the mattress of his bed. And he runs up, grabs a sword. He's like, all right, dragon, I'm ready. Come on in. And the dragon bursts in, trailing smoke like a locomotive. So there's your train reference. Choo-choo. Dragon train. Dragon train. All aboard. The dragon train. <laughs> dragon train. <laughs> I would watch that show. <laughs> I know you would. 100% seems like something you'd watch. <laughs> I think that was a compliment, Daniel. <laughs> So George is no longer feeling afraid. His fear was gone because he is now in control of the story. He knows what's going to happen. He's like, I can write the end of this. But even despite that, at a point earlier, he had gotten a few nicks of dragon teeth into his arm, which had left some blood on his arm. So he's like, okay, gotta be careful still. Are they poisonous dragons? Venomous? No, not in this story. Okay, that's good. So he got bit. So the dragon comes in and George just lops its head off with the sword in a shower of sparks. That was not dramatic. Nope. And then he wakes up because it was a dream. (laughs) Was it, Sam? Was it? Yes. Yes, it was. Kind of, because he says three little white marks on his arm where the dragon bit him. I told you. Liar. It was not a dream. So he wakes up. He's like, what have you been dreaming about? Something about a box and being wounded. And as he's getting his toast together, he gets a knock at the door and it's the mailman. Come to deliver him something. What could it be? Probably the stuff he already got in his dream. Who knows? So the box part wasn't even real. It was part of the dream. No. All of that was part of the dream. Everything up to and including him fighting the dragon was a dream. Got it. Danielle, I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger because we have to end here or we'll never finish this podcast. It's going to be three hours long. Do we find out if the mailman actually delivered the same things? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I have no idea. You're like, I haven't read past this. <laughs> not not uh, in the end of this book, I'll tell you that much. But I'm going to leave you on the chapter, The Halloween Party. Halloween. Which is where we're going to pick up next time on Book Retorts for part three of Fool on the Hill. Halloween. <laughs> Halloween party. Yay. Oh, there was a lot in there. There's a semblance of a plot starting to shape itself together. At least got characters interacting and having conflict. So that's a good start. Is uh, George having to take on the dragon supposed to be some kind of like learning lesson for later in the story? Yes, it's him learning how to write without paper. To control reality with his mind. Use magic, essentially. But not take on dragons. I mean... No more dragons in the story. Danielle, if Deborah shows up, that'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, I don't... I I can't say for... uh, I can't say. I won't won't say anything about if there are or aren't dragons because I want you to be on tenterhooks. I mean, his name's George, so I'm just wondering if there's more dragons involved. I will say that there is the Green Dragon Parade still to come. Oh, yeah, that's right. I hope it comes to life. (laughs) Danielle, have you read this book? (laughs) It just seems like something that would happen in a parade. Ugh. All right. Well, we're going to leave next time with the Halloween party, which is not the last chapter of this book. Halloween. Some... Sam, come on. Sorry. Keep up. <laughs> Halloween party. My mistake. You're right. Uh, apologies to everyone here. But we'll leave it there with all that lovely setup with George coming to power and Calliope being a jerk to him and Ragnarok being a tortured former clansman and a whole bunch of weird stuff that happened in this in this chapter. What will happen? Find out next week on Booker Tort. How much will Danielle remember? Can you remember all the sprite names I listed out during the raid? No. No. (laughs) That's not even something to tease people about. I just won't remember. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, but come see how funny that is next time on Book Retorts. Yay! If you want to write us some suggestions for what you think good sprite names would be, you can do so at bookretorts.com. <laughs> I was just thinking. You can also yeah. tweet Instagram or Facebook us at Book Retorts. Until next time, thank you for this extra long episode and putting up with that. And we'll see you then. Bye. Take care, everybody. stopping recording i mean we can we have enough probably <laughs> do we do we have enough sam i don't know we have enough danielle i mean it's only two and a half hours <laughs> i'm gonna regret editing this this week it's gonna be a real pain yeah that's your fault you're the one who talked for two and a half hours